Chapter One of Anne's House of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter One, in the Garret of Green Gables. Thanks be, I'm done with geometry, learning or teaching it said Anne Shirley, a trifle vindictively, as she thumped a somewhat battered volume of Euclid into a big chest of books, banged the lid in triumph, and sat down upon it, looking at Diana Wright across the Green Gables garret, with gray eyes that were like a morning sky. The garret was a shadowy, suggestive, delightful place, as all garrets should be. Through the open window by which Anne sat blew the sweet, scented, sun-warm air of the August afternoon. Outside, poplar boughs rustled and tossed in the wind. Beyond them were the woods, where Lover's Lane wound its enchanted path, and the old apple orchard, which still bore its rosy harvest munificently. And over all was a great mountain range of snowy clouds in the blue southern sky. Through the other window was glimpsed a distant, white-capped blue sea, the beautiful St. Lawrence Gulf, on which floats like a jewel Abigwhite whose softer, sweeter Indian name has long been forsaken for the more prosaic one of Prince Edward Island. Diana Wright, three years older than when we last saw her, had grown somewhat matronly in the intervening time. But her eyes were as black and brilliant, her cheeks as rosy, and her dimples as enchanting as in the long-ago days when she and Anne Shirley had vowed eternal friendship in the garden at Orchard Slope. In her arms she held a small, sleeping, black-curled creature, who for two happy years had been known to the world of Avonlea as Small Anne Cordelia. Avonlea folks knew why Diana had called her Anne, of course, but Avonlea folks were puzzled by the Cordelia. There had never been a Cordelia in the Wright or Barry connections. Mrs. Harmon Andrews said she supposed Diana had found the name in some trashy novel, and wondered that Fred hadn't more sense than to allow it. But Diana and Anne smiled at each other. They knew how small Anne Cordelia had come by her name. "'You always hated geometry,' said Diana, with a retrospective smile. "'I should think you'd be real glad to be through with teaching, anyhow.' "'Oh, I've always liked teaching, apart from geometry. These past three years in Summerside have been very pleasant ones. Mrs. Harmon Andrews told me when I came home that I wouldn't likely find married life as much better than teaching as I expected.' Evidently Mrs. Harmon is of Hamlet's opinion that it may be better to bear the ills that we have than fly to others that we know not of. Anne's laugh, as blithe and irresistible as of yore, with an added note of sweetness and maturity, rang through the garret. Marilla, in the kitchen below, compounding blue plum preserve, heard it and smiled, then sighed to think how seldom that dear laugh would echo through Green Gables in the years to come. Nothing in her life had ever given Marilla so much happiness as the knowledge that Anne was going to marry Gilbert Blythe. But every joy must bring with it its little shadow of sorrow. During the three summerside years Anne had been home often for vacations and weekends. But after this a biannual visit would be as much as could be hoped for. "'You needn't let what Mrs. Harmon says worry you,' said Diana, with the calm assurance of the four years' matron. Married life has its ups and downs, of course. You mustn't expect that everything will always go smoothly. But I can assure you, Anne, that it's a happy life when you're married to the right man." Anne smothered a smile. Diana's airs of vast experience always amused her a little. "'I dare say I'll be putting them on, too, when I've been married four years,' she thought. 
Surely my sense of humor will preserve me from it, though. "'Is it settled yet where you're going to live?' asked Diana, cuddling small Anne Cordelia with the inimitable gesture of motherhood which always sent through Anne's heart, filled with sweet, unuttered dreams and hopes, a thrill that was half pure pleasure and half a strange ethereal pain. "'Yes, that was what I wanted to tell you when I phoned you to come down today. By the way, I can't realize that we really have telephones in Avonlea now. It sounds so preposterously up-to-date and modernish for this darling, leisurely old place.' "'We can thank the Avis for them,' said Diana. "'We should never have got the line if they hadn't taken the matter up and carried it through. There was enough cold water thrown to discourage any society, but they stuck to it nevertheless. You did a splendid thing for Avonlea when you founded that society, Anne. What fun we did have at our meetings! Will you ever forget the Blue Hall and Judson Parker's scheme for painting medicine advertisements on his fence?' "'I don't know that I'm wholly grateful to the Avis in the matter of the telephone,' said Anne. "'Oh, I know it's most convenient, even more so than our old device of signalling to each other by flashes of candlelight. And, as Mrs. Rachel says, Avonlea must keep up with the procession, that's what. But, somehow, I feel as if I didn't want Avonlea spoiled by what Mr. Harrison, when he wants to be witty, calls modern inconveniences. I should like to have it kept always just as it was in the dear old years.' That's foolish, and sentimental, and impossible. So I shall immediately become wise and practical and possible. The telephone, as Mr. Harrison concedes, is a buster of a good thing, even if you do know that probably half a dozen interested people are listening along the line. That's the worst of it, sighed Diana. It's so annoying to hear the receivers going down whenever you ring anyone up. They say Mrs. Harmon Andrews insisted that their phone should be put in their kitchen just so that she could listen whenever it rang and keep an eye on the dinner at the same time. Today, when you called me, I distinctly heard that queer clock of the pies striking, so no doubt Josie or Gertie was listening. Oh, so that is why you said you've got a new clock at Green Gables, haven't you? I couldn't imagine what you meant. I heard a vicious click as soon as you had spoken. I suppose it was the pie receiver being hung up with profane energy. Well, never mind the pies. As Mrs. Rachel says, pies they always were, and pies they always will be, world without end, amen. I want to talk of pleasanter things. It's all settled as to where my new home shall be. Oh, Anne, where? I do hope it's near here. No, that's the drawback. Gilbert is going to settle at Four Winds Harbor, sixty miles from here. Sixty? It might as well be six hundred sighed Diana. I never can get further from home now than Charlottetown. You'll have to come to Four Winds. It's the most beautiful harbor on the island. There's a little village called Glen St. Mary at its head, and Dr. David Blythe has been practicing there for fifty years. He is Gilbert's great-uncle, you know. He's going to retire, and Gilbert is to take over his practice. Dr. Blythe is going to keep his house, though, so we shall have to find a habitation for ourselves." I don't know yet what it is, or where it will be in reality, but I have a little house of dreams all furnished in my imagination—a tiny, delightful castle in Spain. "'Where are you going for your wedding tour?' asked Diana. "'Nowhere. Don't look horrified, Diana, dearest. You suggest Mrs. Harmon Andrews. She, no doubt, will remark condescendingly that people who can't afford wedding towers are real sensible not to take them, and then she'll remind me that Jane went to Europe for hers.' I want to spend my honeymoon at Four Winds, in my own dear house of dreams. And you've decided not to have any bridesmaid. There isn't any one to have. 
You and Phil and Priscilla and Jane all stole a march on me in the matter of marriage, and Stella is teaching in Vancouver. I have no other kindred soul, and I won't have a bridesmaid who isn't." "'But you are going to wear a veil, aren't you?' asked Diana anxiously. "'Yes, indeedy. I shouldn't feel like a bride without one. I remember telling Matthew that evening when he brought me to Green Gables that I never expected to be a bride because I was so homely no one would ever want to marry me unless some foreign missionary did. I had an idea then that foreign missionaries couldn't afford to be finicky in the matter of looks if they wanted a girl to risk her life among cannibals. You should have seen the foreign missionary Priscilla married. He was as handsome and inscrutable as those daydreams we once planned to marry ourselves, Diana. He was the best-dressed man I ever met, and he raved over Priscilla's ethereal golden beauty. But, of course, there are no cannibals in Japan." "'Your wedding dress is a dream, anyhow,' sighed Diana rapturously. "'You'll look like a perfect queen in it. You're so tall and slender. How do you keep so slim, Anne?' I'm fatter than ever. I'll soon have no waist at all." "'Stoutness and slimness seem to be matters of predestination,' said Anne. "'At all events, Mrs. Harmon Andrews can't say to you what she said to me when I came home from Summerside. Well, Anne, you're just about as skinny as ever. It sounds quite romantic to be slender, but skinny has a very different tang." Mrs. Harmon has been talking about your trousseau. She admits it's as nice as Jane's, although she says Jane married a millionaire and you're only marrying a poor young doctor without a cent to his name." Anne laughed. "'My dresses are nice. I love pretty things. I remember the first pretty dress I ever had, the brown Gloria Matthew gave me for our school concert. Before that everything I had was so ugly. It seemed to me that I stepped into a new world that night. That was the night Gilbert recited Bingen on the Rhine and looked at you when he said, There's another, not a sister, and you were so furious because he put your pink tissue rose in his breast pocket. You didn't imagine then that you would ever marry him. Oh, well, that's another instance of predestination," laughed Anne as they went down the garret stairs. End of chapter 1「Chapter Two of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: The House of Dreams. There was more excitement in the air of Green Gables than there had ever been before in all its history. Even Marilla was so excited that she couldn't help showing it, which was little short of being phenomenal. "There's never been a wedding in this house," she said, half apologetically to Mrs. Rachel Lynde. When I was a child I heard an old minister say that a house was not a real home until it had been consecrated by a birth, a wedding, and a death. We've had deaths here—my father and mother died here as well as Matthew—and we've even had a birth here. Long ago, just after we moved into this house, we had a married hired man for a little while, and his wife had a baby here. But there's never been a wedding before. It does seem so strange to think of Anne being married. In a way she just seems to me the little girl Matthew brought home here fourteen years ago. I can't realize that she's grown up. I shall never forget what I felt when I saw Matthew bringing in a girl. I wonder what became of the boy we would have got if there hadn't been a mistake. I wonder what his fate was." "'Well, it was a fortunate mistake,' said Mrs. Rachel Lynde. Though, mind you, there was a time I didn't think so. That evening I came up to see Anne and she treated us to such a scene. Many things have changed since then, that's what." Mrs. Rachel sighed and then brisked up again. When weddings were in order Mrs. Rachel was ready to let the dead past bury its dead. 
"'I'm going to give Anne two of my cotton-warp spreads,' she resumed. "'A tobacco-stripe one, and an apple-leaf one. She tells me they're getting to be real fashionable again. Well, fashion or no fashion, I don't believe there's anything prettier for a spare-room bed than a nice apple-leaf spread, that's what.' I must see about getting them bleached. I've had them sewed up in cotton bags ever since Thomas died, and no doubt they're an awful color. But there's a month yet, and dew-bleaching will work wonders." "'Only a month,' Marilla sighed and then said proudly, "'I'm giving Anne that half-dozen braided rugs I have in the garret. I never supposed she'd want them. They're so old-fashioned, and nobody seems to want anything but hooked mats now. But she asked me for them said she'd rather have them than anything else for her floors. They are pretty. I made them of the nicest rags and braided them in stripes. It was such company these last few winters. And I'll make her enough blue plum preserve to stock her jam closet for a year. It seems real strange. Those blue plum trees hadn't even a blossom for three years, and I thought they might as well be cut down. And this last spring they were white, and such a crop of plums I never remember at Green Gables. Well, thank goodness that Anne and Gilbert really are going to be married, after all. It's what I've always prayed for," said Mrs. Rachel, in the tone of one who is comfortably sure that her prayers have availed much. It was a great relief to find out that she really didn't mean to take the Kingsport man. He was rich, to be sure, and Gilbert is poor—at least, to begin with. But then he's an island boy." "'He's Gilbert Blythe,' said Marilla contentedly. Marilla would have died the death before she would have put into words the thought that was always in the background of her mind whenever she had looked at Gilbert from his childhood up—the thought that, had it not been for her own willful pride long, long ago, he might have been her son. Marilla felt that, in some strange way, his marriage with Anne would put right that old mistake. Good had come out of the evil of the ancient bitterness. As for Anne herself, she was so happy that she almost felt frightened. The gods, so say the old superstition, do not like to behold two happy mortals. It is certain, at least, that some human beings do not. Two of that ilk descended upon Anne one violet dusk and proceeded to do what in them lay to prick the rainbow bubble of her satisfaction. If she thought she was getting any particular prize in young Dr. Blythe, or if she imagined that he was still as infatuated with her as he might have been in his salad days, it was surely their duty to put the matter before her in another light. Yet these two worthy ladies were not enemies of Anne. On the contrary, they were really quite fond of her, and would have defended her as their own young had anyone else attacked her. Human nature is not obliged to be consistent. Mrs. Inglis, nay, Jane Andrews, to quote from the Daily Enterprise, came with her mother and Mrs. Jasper Bell. But in Jane the milk of human kindness had not been curdled by years of matrimonial bickerings. Her lines had fallen in pleasant places. In spite of the fact, as Mrs. Rachel Lynde would say, that she had married a millionaire, her marriage had been happy. Wealth had not spoiled her. She was still the placid, amiable, pink-cheeked Jane of the old quartet, sympathizing with her old chum's happiness, and as keenly interested in all the dainty details of Anne's trousseau as if it could rival her own silken and bejeweled splendors. Jane was not brilliant, and had probably never made a remark worth listening to in her life, but she never said anything that would hurt anyone's feelings, which may be a negative talent, but is likewise a rare and enviable one. "'So Gilbert didn't go back on you after all,' said Mrs. Harmon Andrews, contriving to convey an expression of surprise in her tone. "'Well, the Blythes generally keep their word when once they've passed it, no matter what happens. 
Let me see. You're twenty-five, aren't you, Anne? When I was a girl, twenty-five was the first corner. But you look quite young. Red-headed people always do. Red hair is very fashionable now," said Anne, trying to smile, but speaking rather coldly. Life had developed in her a sense of humor which helped her over many difficulties, but as yet nothing had availed to steel her against a reference to her hair. "'So it is, so it is,' conceded Mrs. Harmon. "'There's no telling what queer freaks fashion will take. Well, Anne, your things are very pretty and very suitable to your position in life, aren't they, Jane? I hope you'll be very happy. You have my best wishes, I'm sure. A long engagement doesn't often turn out well, but of course in your case it couldn't be helped. Gilbert looks very young for a doctor. I'm afraid people won't have much confidence in him," said Mrs. Jasper Bell gloomily. Then she shut her mouth tightly as if she had said what she considered it her duty to say and held her conscience clear. She belonged to the type which always has a stringy black feather in its hat and straggling locks of hair on its neck. Anne's surface pleasure in her pretty bridal things was temporarily shadowed, but the deeps of happiness below could not thus be disturbed. And the little stings of Madame's Bell and Andrews were forgotten when Gilbert came later, and they wandered down to the birches of the brook, which had been saplings when Anne had come to Green Gables, but were now tall ivory columns in a fairy palace of twilight and stars. In their shadows Anne and Gilbert talked in lover-fashion of their new home and their new life together. "'I found a nest for us, Anne.' "'Oh, where? Not right in the village, I hope. I wouldn't like that altogether.' No. There was no house to be had in the village. This is a little white house on the harbor shore, halfway between Glen St. Mary and Four Winds Point. It's a little out of the way, but when we get a phone in that won't matter so much. The situation is beautiful. It looks to the sunset and has the great blue harbor before it. The sand dunes aren't very far away. The sea winds blow over them, and the sea spray drenches them. But the house itself, Gilbert, our first home, what is it like? Not very large, but large enough for us. There's a splendid living-room with a fireplace in it downstairs, and a dining-room that looks out on the harbor, and a little room that will do for my office. It is about sixty years old, the oldest in Four Winds, but it has been kept in pretty good repair, and was all done over about fifteen years ago, shingled, plastered, and refloored. It was well built to begin with. I understand that there was some romantic story connected with its building, but the man I rented it from didn't know it. He said Captain Jim was the only one who could spin that old yarn now. Who is Captain Jim? The keeper of the lighthouse on Four Winds Point. You'll love that Four Winds light, Anne. It's a revolving one, and it flashes like a magnificent star through the twilights. We can see it from our living-room windows and our front door. Who owns the house? Well, it's the property of the Glen St. Mary Presbyterian Church now, and I rented it from the trustees, but it belonged until lately to a very old lady, Miss Elizabeth Russell. She died last spring, and as she had no near relatives she left her property to the Glen St. Mary Church. Her furniture is still in the house, and I bought most of it, for a mere song, you might say, because it was all so old-fashioned that the trustees despaired of selling it. Glen St. Mary folks prefer plush brocade and sideboards with mirrors and ornamentations, I fancy. But Miss Russell's furniture is very good, and I feel sure you'll like it, Anne." "'So far good,' said Anne, nodding cautious approval. "'But, Gilbert, people cannot live by furniture alone. You haven't yet mentioned one very important thing. Are there trees about this house?' "'Heaps of them, O oh, Dryad. 
There is a big grove of fir trees behind it, two rows of Lombardy poplars down the lane, and a ring of white birches around a very delightful garden. Our front door opens right into the garden, but there is another entrance, a little gate hung between two firs. The hinges are on one trunk and the catch on the other. Their boughs form an arch overhead. Oh, I'm so glad. I couldn't live where there were no trees. Something vital in me would starve. Well, after that, there's no use asking you if there's a brook anywhere near. That would be expecting too much. But there is a brook, and it actually cuts across one corner of the garden. Then, said Anne, with a long sigh of supreme satisfaction, this house you have found is my house of dreams, and none other. End of chapter 2 Chapter Three of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, The Land of Dreams Among. Have you made up your mind who you're going to have to the wedding, Anne? Asked Mrs. Rachel Lynde as she hemstitched table napkins industriously. It's time your invitations were sent, even if they are only to be informal ones. I don't mean to have very many," said Anne. "We just want those we love best to see us married." Gilbert's people, and Mr. and Mrs. Allen, and Mr. and Mrs. Harrison. "'There was a time when you'd hardly have numbered Mr. Harrison among your dearest friends,' said Marilla dryly. "'Well, I wasn't very strongly attracted to him at our first meeting,' acknowledged Anne with a laugh over the recollection. "'But Mr. Harrison has improved on acquaintance, and Mrs. Harrison is really a dear. Then, of course, there are Miss Lavender and Paul. Have they decided to come to the island this summer? I thought they were going to Europe.' They changed their minds when I wrote them I was going to be married. I had a letter from Paul today. He says he must come to my wedding, no matter what happens to Europe." "'That child always idolized you,' remarked Mrs. Rachel. "'That child is a young man of nineteen now, Mrs. Lynde.' "'How time does fly!' was Mrs. Lynde's brilliant and original response. "'Carlotta the Fourth may come with them. She sent word by Paul that she would come if her husband would let her. I wonder if she still wears those enormous blue bows, and whether her husband calls her Carlotta or Leonora. I should love to have Carlotta at my wedding. Carlotta and I were at a wedding long syne. They expect to be at Echo Lodge next week. Then there are Phil and the Reverend Joe. It sounds awful to hear you speaking of a minister like that, Anne," said Mrs. Rachel severely. His wife calls him that. She should have more respect for his holy office, then," retorted Mrs. Rachel. I've heard you criticize ministers pretty sharply yourself," teased Anne. Yes, but I do it reverently," protested Mrs. Lynde. You never heard me nickname a minister. Anne smothered a smile. Well, there are Diana and Fred and little Fred and small Anne Cordelia, and Jane Andrews. I wish I could have Miss Stacy and Aunt Jamesina and Priscilla and Stella, but Stella is in Vancouver and Pris is in Japan, and Miss Stacy is married in California, and Aunt Jamesina has gone to India to explore her daughter's mission field, in spite of her horror of snakes. It's really dreadful the way people get scattered over the globe." "'The Lord never intended it, that's what,' said Mrs. Rachel authoritatively. "'In my young days people grew up and married and settled down where they were born—or pretty near it. Thank goodness you've stuck to the island, Anne. I was afraid Gilbert would insist on rushing off to the ends of the earth when he got through college and dragging you with him." "'If everybody stayed where he was born, places would soon be filled up, Mrs. Lynde. Oh, I'm not going to argue with you, Anne. I am not a B.A. What time of day is the ceremony to be?" 
"'We have decided on noon—high noon, as the society reporters say. That will give us time to catch the evening train to Glen St. Mary. And you'll be married in the parlor? No, not unless it rains. We mean to be married in the orchard, with the blue sky over us and the sunshine around us. Do you know when and where I'd like to be married if I could? It would be at dawn. A June dawn with a glorious sunrise, and roses blooming in the gardens. And I would slip down and meet Gilbert, and we would go together to the heart of the beech woods. And there, under the green arches that would be like a splendid cathedral, we would be married." Marilla sniffed scornfully, and Mrs. Lynde looked shocked. "'But that would be terrible queer, Anne. Why, it wouldn't really seem legal. And what would Mrs. Harmon Andrews say?' "'Ah, there's the rub,' sighed Anne. "'There are so many things in life we cannot do because of the fear of what Mrs. Harmon Andrews would say. "'Tis true, tis pity, and pity tis, tis true. What delightful things we might do were it not for Mrs. Harmon Andrews.' "'By times, Anne, I don't feel quite sure that I understand you altogether,' complained Mrs. Lynde. "'Anne was always romantic, you know,' said Marilla apologetically. "'Well, married life will most likely cure her of that.' Mrs. Rachel responded comfortingly. Anne laughed and slipped away to Lover's Lane, where Gilbert found her, and neither of them seemed to entertain much fear or hope that their married life would cure them of romance. The Echo Lodge people came over the next week, and Green Gables buzzed with the delight of them. Miss Lavender had changed so little that the three years since her last island visit might have been a watch in the night, but Anne gasped with amazement over Paul. Could this splendid six feet of manhood be the little Paul of Avonlea school-days? "'You really make me feel old, Paul,' said Anne. "'Why, I have to look up to you now.' "'You'll never grow old, teacher,' said Paul. "'You are one of the fortunate mortals who have found and drunk from the fountain of youth—you and Mother Lavender. See here. When you're married I won't call you Mrs. Blythe. To me you'll always be teacher—the teacher of the best lessons I ever learned. I want to show you something.' The something was a pocket-book full of poems. Paul had put some of his beautiful fancies into verse, and magazine editors had not been as unappreciative as they are sometimes supposed to be. Anne read Paul's poems with real delight. They were full of charm and promise. "'You'll be famous yet, Paul. I always dreamed of having one famous pupil. He was to be a college president, but a great poet would be even better. Some day I'll be able to boast that I whipped the distinguished Paul Irving. But then I never did whip you, did I, Paul? What an opportunity lost! I think I kept you in at recess, however. You may be famous yourself, teacher. I've seen a good deal of your work these last three years. No, I know what I can do. I can write pretty, fanciful little sketches that children love and editors send welcome checks for. But I can do nothing big. My only chance for earthly immortality is a corner in your memoirs. Carlotta the Fourth had discarded the blue bows, but her freckles were not noticeably less. "'I never did think I'd come down to marrying a Yankee, Miss Shirley, ma'am,' she said. "'But you never know what's before you, and it isn't his fault. He was born that way.' "'You're a Yankee yourself, Carlotta, since you've married one.' "'Miss Shirley, ma'am, I'm not. And I wouldn't be if I was to marry a dozen Yankees. Tom's kinda nice. And besides, I thought I'd better not be too hard to please, for I mightn't get another chance.' Tom don't drink, and he don't growl because he has to work between meals, and when all's said and done I'm satisfied, Miss Shirley, ma'am." "'Does he call you Leonora?' asked Anne. "'Goodness, no, Miss Shirley, ma'am. I wouldn't know who he meant if he did. Of course, when we got married he had to say, I take thee Leonora, 
And I declare to you, Miss Shirley, ma'am, I've had the most dreadful feeling ever since that it wasn't me he was talking to, and I haven't been rightly married at all. And so you're going to be married yourself, Miss Shirley, ma'am. I always thought I'd like to marry a doctor. It would be so handy when the children had measles and croup. Tom is only a bricklayer, but he's real good-tempered. When I said to him, says I, Tom, can I go to Miss Shirley's wedding? I mean to go anyhow, but I'd like to have your consent. He just says, Suit yourself, Carlotta, and you'll suit me. That's a real pleasant kind of husband to have, Miss Shirley, ma'am." Philippa and her Reverend Joe arrived at Green Gables the day before the wedding. Anne and Phil had a rapturous meeting, which presently simmered down to a cozy, confidential chat over all that had been and was about to be. "'Queen Anne, you're as queenly as ever. I've got fearfully thin since the babies came. I'm not half so good-looking, but I think Joe likes it. There's not such a contrast between us, you see. And, oh, it's perfectly magnificent that you're going to marry Gilbert. Roy Gardner wouldn't have done at all at all. I can see that now, though I was horribly disappointed at the time. You know, Anne, you did treat Roy very badly." "'He has recovered, I understand,' smiled Anne. "'Oh, yes. He is married, and his wife is a sweet little thing, and they're perfectly happy. Everything works together for good. Joe and the Bible say that, and they're pretty good authorities. Are Alec and Alonzo married yet?' Alec is, but Alonzo isn't. How those dear old days at Patty's Place come back when I'm talking to you, Anne! What fun we had! Have you been to Patty's Place lately? Oh, yes, I go often. Miss Patty and Miss Maria still sit by the fireplace and knit. And that reminds me, we've brought you a wedding gift from them, Anne. Guess what it is. I never could. How did they know I was going to be married? Oh, I told them. I was there last week, and they were so interested. Two days ago Miss Patty wrote me a note asking me to call, and then she asked if I would take her gift to you. What would you wish most from Patty's place, Anne? You can't mean that Miss Patty has sent me her china dogs. Go up, Head. They're in my trunk this very moment, and I've a letter for you. Wait a moment and I'll get it. Dear Miss Shirley, Miss Patty had written, Maria and I were very much interested in hearing of your approaching nuptials. We send you our best wishes. Maria and I have never married, but we have no objection to other people doing so. We are sending you the china dogs. I intended to leave them to you in my will, because you seem to have sincere affection for them. But Maria and I expect to live a good while yet, D.V., so I have decided to give you the dogs while you are young. You will not have forgotten that Gog looks to the right and Magog to the left. "'Just fancy those lovely old dogs sitting by the fireplace in my house of dreams,' said Anne rapturously. "'I never expected anything so delightful.'" That evening Green Gables hummed with preparations for the following day. But in the twilight Anne slipped away. She had a little pilgrimage to make on this last day of her girlhood, and she must make it alone. She went to Matthew's grave, in the little poplar-shaded Avonlea graveyard, and there kept a silent tryst with old memories and immortal loves. "'How glad Matthew would be tomorrow if he were here,' she whispered. "'But I believe he does know, and is glad of it, somewhere else. I've read somewhere that our dead are never dead until we have forgotten them. Matthew will never be dead to me, for I can never forget him.' She left on his grave the flowers she had brought, and walked slowly down the long hill. It was a gracious evening, full of delectable lights and shadows. In the west was a sky of mackerel clouds, crimson and amber-tinted, with long strips of apple-green sky between them. Beyond was the glimmering radiance of a sunset sea, and the ceaseless voice of many waters came up from the tawny shore. All around her, 
lying in the fine, beautiful country silence, were the hills and fields and woods she had known and loved so long. "'History repeats itself,' said Gilbert, joining her as she passed the Blythe Gate. "'Do you remember our first walk down this hill, Anne? Our first walk together anywhere, for that matter?' I was coming home in the twilight from Matthew's grave, and you came out of the gate, and I swallowed the pride of years and spoke to you. And all heaven opened before me," supplemented Gilbert. From that moment I looked forward to tomorrow. When I left you at your gate that night and walked home, I was the happiest boy in the world. Anne had forgiven me. I think you had the most to forgive. I was an ungrateful little wretch. And after you had really saved my life that day on the pond, too. How I loathed that load of obligation at first! I don't deserve the happiness that has come to me." Gilbert laughed and clasped tighter the girlish hand that wore his ring. Anne's engagement ring was a circlet of pearls. She had refused to wear a diamond. I've never really liked diamonds since I found out they weren't the lovely purple I had dreamed. They will always suggest my old disappointment. But pearls are for tears, the old legend says, Gilbert had objected. I'm not afraid of that and tears can be happy as well as sad. My very happiest moments have been when I had tears in my eyes, when Marilla told me I might stay at Green Gables, when Matthew gave me the first pretty dress I ever had, when I heard that you were going to recover from the fever. So give me pearls for our troth ring, Gilbert, and I'll willingly accept the sorrow of life with its joy. But to-night our lovers thought only of joy and never of sorrow, for the morrow was their wedding day and their house of dreams awaited them on the misty purple shore of Four Winds Harbor. End of chapter 3「Chapter 4 of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The First Bride of Green Gables Anne wakened on the morning of her wedding day to find the sunshine winking in at the window of the little porch gable and a September breeze frolicking with her curtains. "'I'm so glad the sun will shine on me,' she thought happily. She recalled the first morning she had wakened in that little porch room when the sunshine had crept in on her through the blossom drift of the old Snow Queen. That had not been a happy wakening, for it brought with it the bitter disappointment of the preceding night. But since then the little room had been endeared and consecrated by years of happy childhood dreams and maiden visions. To it she had come back joyfully after all her absences. At its window she had knelt through that night of bitter agony when she believed Gilbert dying, and by it she had sat in speechless happiness the night of her betrothal. Many vigils of joy and some of sorrow had been kept there, and today she must leave it forever. Henceforth it would be hers no more. Fifteen-year-old Dora was to inherit it when she had gone. Nor did Anne wish it otherwise. The little room was sacred to youth and girlhood, to the past that was to close to-day before the chapter of wifehood opened. Green Gables was a busy and joyous house that forenoon. Diana arrived early, with little Fred and small Anne Cordelia to lend a hand. Davy and Dora, the Green Gables twins, whisked the babies off to the garden. "'Don't let small Anne Cordelia spoil her clothes,' warned Diana anxiously. "'You needn't be afraid to trust her with Dora,' said Marilla. "'That child is more sensible and careful than most of the mothers I've known. She's really a wonder in some ways. Not much like that other harem-scarum I brought up.' Marilla smiled across her chicken salad at Anne. It might even be suspected that she liked the harem-scarum best, after all. 
"'Those twins are real nice children,' said Mrs. Rachel, when she was sure they were out of earshot. "'Dora is so womanly and helpful, and Davy is developing into a very smart boy. He isn't the holy terror for mischief he used to be. I never was so distracted in my life as I was the first six months he was here,' acknowledged Marilla. "'After that I suppose I got used to him. He's taken a great notion to farming lately, and he wants me to let him try running the farm next year.' I may, for Mr. Barry doesn't think he'll want to rent it much longer, and some new arrangement will have to be made." "'Well, you certainly have a lovely day for your wedding, Anne,' said Diana, as she slipped a voluminous apron over her silken array. "'You couldn't have had a finer one if you'd ordered it from Eaton's.' "'Indeed there's too much money going out of this island to that same Eaton's,' said Mrs. Lynde indignantly. She had strong views on the subject of octopus-like department stores, and never lost an opportunity of airing them. And as for those catalogues of theirs, they're the Avonlea girls' Bible now, that's what. They pore over them on Sundays instead of studying the Holy Scriptures." "'Well, they're splendid to amuse children with,' said Diana. Fred and small Anne look at the pictures by the hour." "'I amuse ten children without the aid of Eaton's catalogue,' said Mrs. Rachel severely. "'Come, you two, don't quarrel over Eaton's catalogue,' said Anne gaily. "'This is my day of days, you know. I'm so happy I want everyone else to be happy, too." "'I'm sure I hope your happiness will last, child,' sighed Mrs. Rachel. She did hope it, truly, and believed it, but she was afraid it was in the nature of a challenge to Providence to flaunt your happiness too openly. Anne, for her own good, must be toned down a trifle. But it was a happy and beautiful bride who came down the old, homespun carpeted stairs that September noon—the first bride of Green Gables slender and shining-eyed in the midst of her maiden veil, with her arms full of roses. Gilbert, waiting for her in the hall below, looked up at her with adoring eyes. She was his at last, this evasive, long-sought Anne, one after years of patient waiting. It was to him she was coming in the sweet surrender of the bride. Was he worthy of her? Could he make her as happy as he hoped? If he failed her, if he could not measure up to her standard of manhood, then, as she held out her hand, their eyes met, and all doubt was swept away in a glad certainty. They belonged to each other, and no matter what life might hold for them, it could never alter that. Their happiness was in each other's keeping, and both were unafraid. They were married in the sunshine of the old orchard, circled by the loving and kindly faces of long familiar friends. Mr. Allen married them and the Reverend Joe made what Mrs. Rachel Lynde afterwards pronounced to be the most beautiful wedding prayer she had ever heard. Birds do not often sing in September, but one sang sweetly from some hidden bough, while Gilbert and Anne repeated their deathless vows. Anne heard it and thrilled to it. Gilbert heard it, and wondered only that all the birds in the world had not burst into jubilant song. Paul heard it and later wrote a lyric about it, which was one of the most admired in his first volume of verse. Carlotta the Fourth heard it, and was blissfully sure it meant good luck for her adored Miss Shirley. The bird sang until the ceremony was ended, and then it wound up with one mad little glad little trill. Never had the old gray-green house among its enfolding orchards known a blither, merrier afternoon. All the old jests and quips that must have done duty at weddings since Eden were served up, and seemed as new and brilliant and mirth-provoking as if they had never been uttered before. Laughter and joy had their way, and when Anne and Gilbert left to catch the Carmody train with Paul as driver, 
the twins were ready with rice and old shoes, in the throwing of which Carlotta the Fourth and Mr. Harrison bore a valiant part. Marilla stood at the gate and watched the carriage out of sight down the long lane with its banks of goldenrod. Anne turned at its end to wave her last good-bye. She was gone. Green Gables was her home no more. Marilla's face looked very gray and old as she turned to the house which Anne had filled for fourteen years, and even in her absence with light and life. But Diana and her small fry, the Echo Lodge people, and the Allens, had stayed to help the two old ladies over the loneliness of the first evening, and they contrived to have a quietly pleasant little supper-time, sitting long around the table and chatting over all the details of the day. While they were sitting there, Anne and Gilbert were alighting from the train at Glen St. Mary. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Homecoming. Dr. David Blythe had sent his horse and buggy to meet them, and the urchin who had brought it slipped away with a sympathetic grin, leaving them to the delight of driving alone to their new home through the radiant evening. Anne never forgot the loveliness of the view that broke upon them when they had driven over the hill behind the village. Her new home could not yet be seen, but before her lay Four Winds Harbor, like a great shining mirror of rose and silver. Far down she saw its entrance between the bar of sand-dunes on the one side and a steep, high, grim red sandstone cliff on the other. Beyond the bar the sea, calm and austere, dreamed in the afterlight. The little fishing village, nestled in the cove where the sand-dunes met the harbor shore, looked like a great opal in the haze. The sky over them was like a jeweled cup from which the dusk was pouring, the air was crisp with the compelling tang of the sea, and the whole landscape was infused with the subtleties of a sea evening. A few dim sails drifted along the darkening, fir-clad harbor shores. A bell was ringing from the tower of a little white church on the far side. Mellowly and dreamily sweet, the chime floated across the water, blent with the moan of the sea. The great, revolving light on the cliff at the channel flashed warm and golden against the clear northern sky, a trembling, quivering star of good hope. Far out along the horizon was the crinkled gray ribbon of a passing steamer's smoke. "'Oh, beautiful, beautiful,' murmured Anne. "'I shall love Four Winds, Gilbert. Where is our house?' "'We can't see it yet. The belt of birch running up from that little cove hides it. It's about two miles from Glen St. Mary, and there's another mile between it and the lighthouse. We won't have many neighbors, Anne. There's only one house near us, and I don't know who lives in it. Shall you be lonely when I'm away? Not with that light and that loveliness for company. Who lives in that house, Gilbert? I don't know. It doesn't look exactly as if the occupants would be kindred spirits, Anne, does it? The house was a large, substantial affair, painted such a vivid green that the landscape seemed quite faded by contrast. There was an orchard behind it, and a nicely kept lawn before it, but somehow there was a certain bareness about it. Perhaps its neatness was responsible for this. The whole establishment—house, barns, orchard, garden, lawn, and lane—was so starkly neat. It doesn't seem probable that anyone with that taste in paint could be very kindred," acknowledged Anne, unless it were an accident, like our blue hall. 
I feel certain there are no children there, at least. It's even neater than the old cop place on the Tory Road, and I never expected to see anything neater than that." They had not met anybody on the moist red road that wound along the harbor shore. But just before they came to the belt of birch which hid their home, Anne saw a girl who was driving a flock of snow-white geese along the crest of a velvety green hill on the right. Great scattered firs grew along it. Between their trunks one saw glimpses of yellow harvest-fields, gleams of golden sand-hills, and bits of blue sea. The girl was tall, and wore a dress of pale blue print. She walked with a certain springiness of step and erectness of bearing. She and her geese came out of the gate at the foot of the hill as Anne and Gilbert passed. She stood with her hand on the fastening of the gate and looked steadily at them, with an expression that hardly attained to interest, but did not descend to curiosity. It seemed to Anne, for a fleeting moment, that there was even a veiled hint of hostility in it. But it was the girl's beauty which made Anne give a little gasp, a beauty so marked that it must have attracted attention anywhere. She was hatless, but heavy braids of burnished hair, the hue of ripe wheat, were twisted about her head like a coronet. Her eyes were blue and star-like. Her figure, in its plain print gown, was magnificent, and her lips were as crimson as a bunch of blood-red poppies she wore at her belt. Gilbert. "'Who is the girl we have just passed?' asked Anne in a low voice. "'I didn't notice any girl,' said Gilbert, who had only eyes for his bride. "'She was standing by that gate. No, don't look back. She's still watching us. I never saw such a beautiful face.' "'I don't remember seeing any very handsome girls while I was here. There are some pretty girls up at the Glen, but I hardly think they could be called beautiful. This girl is. You can't have seen her or you would remember her. Nobody could forget her.' I never saw such a face except in pictures. And her hair! It made me think of Browning's cord of gold and gorgeous snake. Probably she's some visitor in Four Winds, likely someone from that big summer hotel over the harbor. She wore a white apron and she was driving geese. She might do that for amusement. Look, Anne, there's our house." Anne looked and forgot for a time the girl with the splendid, resentful eyes. The first glimpse of her new home was a delight to eye and spirit. It looked so like a big, creamy seashell stranded on the harbor shore. The rows of tall Lombardy poplars down its lane stood out in stately purple silhouette against the sky. Behind it, sheltering its garden from the too keen breath of sea-winds, was a cloudy fir-wood in which the winds might make all kinds of weird and haunting music. Like all woods, it seemed to be holding and enfolding secrets in its recesses—secrets whose charm is only to be won by entering in and patiently seeking. Outwardly, dark green arms keep them inviolate from curious or indifferent eyes. The night winds were beginning their wild dances beyond the bar, and the fishing hamlet across the harbor was gemmed with lights as Anne and Gilbert drove up the poplar lane. The door of the little house opened, and a warm glow of firelight flickered out into the dusk. Gilbert lifted Anne from the buggy and led her into the garden, through the little gate between the ruddy-tipped firs, up the trim red path to the sandstone step. "'Welcome home,' he whispered, and hand in hand they stepped over the threshold of their house of dreams. End of chapter 5 Chapter Six of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Captain Jim Old Dr. Dave and Mrs. Dr. Dave had come down to the little house to greet the bride and groom. Dr. Dave was a big, jolly, white-whiskered old fellow, and Mrs. Doctor was a trim, rosy-cheeked, silver-haired little lady who took Anne at once to her heart, literally and figuratively. "'I'm so glad to see you, dear. You must be real tired. We've got a bite of supper ready, and Captain Jim brought up some trout for you. Captain Jim, where are you?' Oh, he slipped out to see to the horse, I suppose. Come upstairs and take your things off." Anne looked about her with bright, appreciative eyes as she followed Mrs. Dr. Dave upstairs. She liked the appearance of her new home very much. It seemed to have the atmosphere of Green Gables and the flavor of her old traditions. "'I think I would have found Miss Elizabeth Russell a kindred spirit,' she murmured when she was alone in her room. There were two windows in it. The dormer one looked out on the lower harbor and the sandbar and the four winds light. A magic casement opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn, quoted Anne softly. The gable window gave a view of a little harvest-hued valley through which a brook ran. Half a mile up the brook was the only house in sight, an old, rambling, gray one surrounded by huge willows through which its windows peered like shy, seeking eyes into the dusk. Anne wondered who lived there. They would be her nearest neighbors, and she hoped they would be nice. She suddenly found herself thinking of the beautiful girl with the white geese. "'Gilbert thought she didn't belong here,' mused Anne. "'But I feel sure she does. There was something about her that made her part of the sea and the sky and the harbor. Four winds is in her blood.' When Anne went downstairs, Gilbert was standing before the fireplace talking to a stranger. Both turned as Anne entered. "'Anne, this is Captain Boyd. Captain Boyd? My wife.' It was the first time Gilbert had said, "'My wife,' to anybody but Anne, and he narrowly escaped bursting with the pride of it. The old captain held out a sinewy hand to Anne. They smiled at each other, and were friends from that moment. Kindred spirit flashed recognition to kindred spirit. "'I'm downright pleased to meet you, Mistress Blythe and I hope you'll be as happy as the first bride was who came here. I can't wish you no better than that. But your husband doesn't introduce me just exactly right. Captain Jim is my week-a-day name, and you might as well begin as you're certain to end up, calling me that. You certainly are a nice little bride, Mistress Blythe. Looking at you sort of makes me feel that I've just been married myself." Amid the laughter that followed, Mrs. Dr. Dave urged Captain Jim to stay and have supper with them. "'Thank you kindly. It'll be a real treat, Mistress Doctor. I mostly ask to eat my meals alone, with the reflection of my ugly old fizz in a looking-glass opposite for company. Tisn't often I have a chance to sit down with two such sweet, purdy ladies." Captain Jim's compliments may look very bald on paper, but he paid them with such a gracious, gentle deference of tone and look that the woman upon whom they were bestowed felt that she was being offered a queen's tribute in a kingly fashion. Captain Jim was a high-souled, simple-minded old man, with eternal youth in his eyes and heart. He had a tall, rather ungainly figure, somewhat stooped, yet suggestive of great strength and endurance. A clean-shaven face, deeply lined and bronzed, a thick mane of iron-gray hair falling quite to his shoulders, and a pair of remarkably blue, deep-set eyes, which sometimes twinkled, and sometimes dreamed, and sometimes looked out seaward with a wistful quest in them, as of one seeking something precious and lost. 
Anne was to learn one day what it was for which Captain Jim looked. It could not be denied that Captain Jim was a homely man. His spare jaws, rugged mouth, and square brow were not fashioned on the lines of beauty, and he had passed through many hardships and sorrows which had marked his body as well as his soul. But though at first sight Anne thought him plain, she never thought anything more about it. The spirit shining through that rugged tenement beautified it so wholly. They gathered around the supper-table. The hearth-fire banished the chill of the September evening, but the window of the dining-room was open, and sea-breezes entered at their own sweet will. The view was magnificent, taking in the harbour and the sweep of low purple hills beyond. The table was heaped with Mrs. Doctor's delicacies, but the pièce de résistance was undoubtedly the big platter of sea-trout. "'Thought they'd be sort of tasty after travelling," said Captain Jim. "'They're fresh as trout can be, Mistress Blythe. Two hours ago they were swimming in the Glen Pond.' "'Who is attending to the light tonight, Captain Jim?' asked Dr. Dave. "'Nephew Alec. He understands it as well as I do. Well, now, I'm real glad you asked me to stay to supper. I'm proper hungry. Didn't have much of a dinner to-day.' "'I believe you half starve yourself most of the time down at that light,' said Mrs. Dr. Dave severely. You won't take the trouble to get up a decent meal." "'Oh, I do, Mistress Doctor, I do,' protested Captain Jim. "'Why, I live like a king, generally. Last night I was up to the Glen and took home two pounds of steak. I meant to have a spanking good dinner to-day.' "'And what happened to the steak?' asked Mrs. Dr. Dave. "'Did you lose it on the way home?' "'No,' Captain Jim looked sheepish. Just at bedtime a poor, ornery sort of dog came along and asked for a night's lodging. Guess he belonged to some of the fishermen longshore. I couldn't turn the poor cur out. He had a sore foot. So I shut him in the porch with an old bag to lie on and went to bed. But somehow I couldn't sleep. Come to think it over, I sort of remembered that the dog looked hungry. "'And you got up and gave him that steak—all that steak,' said Mrs. Dr. Dave, with a kind of triumphant reproof. "'Well, there wasn't anything else to give him,' said Captain Jim deprecatingly. "'Nothing a dog'd care for, that is. I reckon he was hungry, for he made about two bites of it. I had a fine sleep the rest of the night, but my dinner had to be sort of scanty—potatoes and point, as you might say. The dog he lit out for home this morning. I reckon he weren't a vegetarian.' "'The idea of starving yourself for a worthless dog,' sniffed Mrs. Doctor. "'You don't know, but he may be worth a lot to somebody,' protested Captain Jim. "'He didn't look of much account, but you can't go by looks in judging a dog. Like myself, he might be a real beauty inside. The first mate didn't approve of him, I'll allow. His language was right down forcible. But the first mate is prejudiced. No use in taking a cat's opinion of a dog. At any rate, I lost my dinner, so this nice spread in this delightful company is real pleasant.' It's a great thing to have good neighbors. "'Who lives in the house among the willows up the brook?' asked Anne. "'Mrs. Dick Moore,' said Captain Jim. "'And her husband,' he added, as if by way of an afterthought. Anne smiled, and deduced a mental picture of Mrs. Dick Moore from Captain Jim's way of putting it—evidently a second Mrs. Rachel Lynde. "'You haven't many neighbors, Mistress Blythe,' Captain Jim went on. "'This side of the harbor is mighty thinly settled.' Most of the land belongs to Mr. Howard up yonder past the Glen, and he rents it out for pasture. The other side of the harbor now is thick with folks, especially McAllisters. There's a whole colony of McAllisters. 
You can't throw a stone, but you hit one. I was talking to old Leon Blackyear the other day. He's been working on the harbor all summer. "'Dare nearly all McAllister's over there,' he told me. "'There's Neil McAllister, and Sandy McAllister, and William McAllister, and Alec McAllister, and Angus McAllister, and I believe there's the devil McAllister.' "'There are nearly as many Elliots and Crawfords,' said Dr. Dave, after the laughter had subsided. "'You know, Gilbert, we folk on this side of Four Winds have an old saying. From the conceit of the Elliots, the pride of the McAllisters, and the vainglory of the Crawfords, good Lord deliver us.' "'There's plenty of fine people among them, though,' said Captain Jim. "'I sailed with William Crawford for many a year, and for courage and endurance and truth that man hadn't an equal. They've got brains over on that side of Four Winds. Maybe that's why this side is sorter inclined to pick on em. Strange, ain't it, how folks seem to resent anyone being born a mite cleverer than they be? Dr. Dave, who had a forty years feud with the over-harbor people, laughed and subsided. "'Who lives in that brilliant emerald house about half a mile up the road?' asked Gilbert. Captain Jim smiled delightedly. "'Miss Cornelia Bryant. She'll likely be over to see you soon, seeing your Presbyterians. If you were Methodists, she wouldn't come at all. Cornelia has a holy horror of Methodists.' "'She's quite a character,' chuckled Dr. Dave. "'A most inveterate man-hater.' "'Sour grapes?' queried Gilbert, laughing. "'No, tisn't sour grapes,' answered Captain Jim seriously. "'Cornelia could have had her pick when she was young. Even yet she's only to say the word to see the old widowers jump. She just seems to have been born with a chronic spite agin men and Methodists. She's got the bitterest tongue and the kindest heart in four winds. Wherever there's any trouble, that woman is there, doing everything to help in the tenderest way.' She never says a harsh word about another woman, and if she likes to card us poor scallywags and men down, I reckon our tough old heights can stand it. "'She always speaks well of you, Captain Jim,' said Mrs. Doctor. "'Yes, I'm afraid so. I don't half like it. It makes me feel as if there must be something sort of unnatural about me.'" End of chapter 6「Chapter Seven of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Schoolmaster's Bride. Who was the first bride who came to this house, Captain Jim? Anne asked as they sat around the fireplace after supper. Was she part of the story I've heard was connected with this house? asked Gilbert. Somebody told me you could tell it, Captain Jim. Well, yes, I know it. I reckon I'm the only person livin' in Four Winds now that can remember the schoolmaster's bride, as she was when she came to the island. She's been dead this thirty year, but she was one of them women you never forget. "'Tell us the story,' pleaded Anne. "'I want to find out all about the women who have lived in this house before me.' "'Well, there's just been three—Elizabeth Russell, and Mrs. Ned Russell, and the schoolmaster's bride. Elizabeth Russell was a nice, clever little critter, and Mrs. Ned was a nice woman, too but they weren't ever like the schoolmaster's bride. The schoolmaster's name was John Selwyn. He came out from the old country to teach school at the Glen when I was a boy of sixteen. He wasn't much like the usual run of derelicts who used to come out to P.E.I. to teach school in them days. Most of them were clever, drunken critters who taught the children the three R's when they were sober, and lambasted them when they wasn't. But John Selwyn was a fine, handsome young fellow. He boarded at my father's, and he and me were cronies, though he was ten years older than me. We read and walked and talked a heap together. 
He knew about all the poetry that was ever written, I reckon, and he used to quote it to me along the shore in the evenings. Dad thought it an awful waste of time, but he sorter endured it, hoping it had put me off the notion of going to sea. Well, nothing could do that. Mother came of a race of sea-going folk, and it was born in me. But I loved to hear John read and recite. It's almost sixty years ago, but I could repeat yards of poetry I learned from him. Nearly sixty years." Captain Jim was silent for a space, gazing into the glowing fire in a quest of the bygones. Then, with a sigh, he resumed his story. I remember one spring evening I met him on the sand-hills. He looked sort of uplifted, just like you did, Dr. Blythe, when you brought Mistress Blythe in tonight. I thought of him the minute I seen you, and he told me that he had a sweetheart back home, and that she was coming out to him. I wasn't more than half pleased, ornery young lump of selfishness that I was. I thought he wouldn't be as much my friend after she came. But I'd decency enough not to let him see it. He told me all about her. Her name was Persis Lee, and she would have come out with him if it hadn't been for her old uncle. He was sick, and he'd looked after her when her parents died and she wouldn't leave him. And now he was dead, and she was coming out to marry John Selwyn. "'Twas a no easy journey for a woman in them days. There weren't no steamers, you must recollect. "'When'd you expect her?' says I. "'She sails on the Royal William the twentieth of June,' says he, "'and so she should be here by mid-July.' I must set Carpenter Johnson to building me a home for her. Her letter came to-day. I knew before I opened it that it had good news for me. I saw her a few nights ago." I didn't understand him, and then he explained, though I didn't understand that much better. He said he had a gift, or a curse. Them was his words, Mistress Blythe, a gift or a curse. He didn't know which it was. He said a great-great-grandmother of his had had it, and they burned her for a witch on account of it. He said queer spells. Trances, I think, was the name he give him. Come over him now and again. Are there such things, doctor?" "'There are people who are certainly subject to trances,' answered Gilbert. The matter is more in the line of psychical research than medical. What were the trances of this John Selwyn like?" "'Like dreams,' said the old doctor skeptically. "'He said he could see things in them,' said Captain Jim slowly. "'Mind you, I'm telling you just what he said—things that were happening things that were going to happen. He said they were sometimes a comfort to him, and sometimes a horror. Four nights before this he'd been in one, went into it while he was sitting looking at the fire, and he saw an old room he knew well in England, and Persis Lee in it, holding out her hands to him, and looking glad and happy, so he knew he was going to hear good news of her. "'A dream, a dream,' scoffed the old doctor. "'Likely, likely,' conceded Captain Jim. That's what I said to him at the time. It was a vast more comfortable to think so. I didn't like the idea of him seeing things like that. It was real uncanny. Nope, says he. I didn't dream it. But we won't talk of this again. You won't be so much my friend if you think much about it. I told him nothing could make me any less his friend. But he just shook his head and says, says he, Lad, I know. I've lost friends before because of this. I don't blame him. There are times when I feel hardly friendly to myself because of it. Such a power has a bit of divinity in it, whether of a good or an evil divinity, who shall say? And we mortals all shrink from too close contact with God or devil. Them was his words. I remember them as if twas yesterday, though I didn't know just what he meant. What do you suppose he did mean, doctor?" "'I doubt if he knew what he meant himself,' said Dr. Dave testily. "'I think I understand,' whispered Anne. 
She was listening in her old attitude of clasped lips and shining eyes. Captain Jim treated himself to an admiring smile before he went on with his story. Well, pretty soon all the Glen and Four Winds people knew the schoolmaster's bride was coming, and they were all glad because they thought so much of him. And everybody took an interest in his new house—this house. He picked this site for it because you could see the harbor and hear the sea from it. He made the garden out there for his bride, but he didn't plant the Lombardies. Mrs. Ned Russell planted them. But there's a double row of rose-bushes in the garden that the little girls who went to the Glen school set out there for the schoolmaster's bride. He said they were pink for her cheeks, and white for her brow, and red for her lips. He'd quoted poetry so much that he sort of got into the habit of talking it, too, I reckon. Almost everybody sent him some little present to help out the furnishing of the house. When the Russells came into it, they were well-to-do and furnished it real handsome, as you can see. But the first furniture that went into it was plain enough. This little house was rich in love, though. The women sent in quilts and tablecloths and towels, and one man made a chest for her, and another a table, and so on. Even blind old Aunt Margaret Boyd wove a little basket for her out of the sweet-scented sandhill grass. The schoolmaster's wife used it for years to keep her handkerchiefs in. Well, at last everything was ready, even to the logs in the big fireplace ready for lighting. "'Twasn't exactly this fireplace, though twas in the same place. Miss Elizabeth had this put in when she made the house over fifteen years ago. It was a big, old-fashioned fireplace where you could have roasted an ox. Many's the time I've sat here and spun yarns, same's I'm doin' to-night." Again there was a silence while Captain Jim kept a passing tryst with visitants Anne and Gilbert could not see—the folks who had sat with him around that fireplace in the vanished years with mirth and bridal joy shining in eyes long since closed forever under churchyard sod or heaving leagues of sea. Here on olden nights children had tossed laughter lightly to and fro. Here on winter evenings friends had gathered. Dance and music and jest had been here. Here youths and maidens had dreamed. For Captain Jim the little house was tenanted with shapes entreating remembrance. It was the first of July when the house was finished. The schoolmaster began to count the days then. We used to see him walking along the shore, and we'd say to each other, "'She'll soon be with him now.' She was expected the middle of July, but she didn't come then. Nobody felt anxious. Vessels were often delayed for days and maybe weeks. The Royal William was a week overdue, and then two, and then three, and at last we began to be frightened, and it got worse and worse. Finally I couldn't bear to look into John Selwyn's eyes. "'D'you know, Mistress Blythe,' Captain Jim lowered his voice, "'I used to think that they looked just like what his old great-great-grandmothers must have been when they were burning her to death. He never said much, but he taught school like a man in a dream, and then hurried to the shore. Many a night he walked there from dark to dawn. People said he was losing his mind. Everybody had given up hope. The Royal William was eight weeks overdue.' It was the middle of September, and the schoolmaster's bride hadn't come—never would come, we thought. There was a big storm then that lasted three days, and on the evening after it died away I went to the shore. I found the schoolmaster there, leaning with his arms folded against a big rock, gazing out to sea. I spoke to him, but he didn't answer. His eyes seemed to be looking at something I couldn't see. His face was set, like a dead man's. John. "'John!' I called out, just like that, just like a frightened child. "'Wake up! Wake up!' 
That strange, awful look seemed to sort of fade out of his eyes. He turned his head and looked at me. I have never forgot his face, never will forget it till I ships for my last voyage. "'All is well, lad,' he says. "'I've seen the Royal William coming around East Point. She'll be here by dawn. Tomorrow night I shall sit with my bride by my own hearth-fire.' "'Do you think he did see it?' demanded Captain Jim abruptly. "'God knows,' said Gilbert softly. "'Great love and great pain might compass we know not what marvels.' "'I am sure he did see it,' said Anne earnestly. "'Falderall,' said Dr. Dave, but he spoke with less conviction than usual. "'Because you know,' said Captain Jim solemnly, "'the Royal William came into Four Winds Harbor at daylight the next morning. Every soul in the glen and along the shore was at the old wharf to meet her. The schoolmaster had been watching there all night. How we cheered as she sailed up the channel!' Captain Jim's eyes were shining. They were looking at the Four Winds Harbor of sixty years agone, with a battered old ship sailing through the sunrise splendor. "'And Persis Lee was on board?' asked Anne. "'Yes. Her and the captain's wife. They'd had an awful passage, storm after storm, and their provisions give out, too. But there they were at last. When Persis Lee stepped onto the old wharf, John Selwyn took her in his arms, and folks stopped cheering and begun to cry. I cried myself though twas years, mind you, afore I'd admitted. Ain't it funny how ashamed boys are of tears?' "'Was Persis sleep beautiful?' asked Anne. "'Well, I don't know that you'd call her beautiful exactly. I don't know,' said Captain Jim slowly. "'Somehow you never got so far along as to wonder if she was handsome or not. It just didn't matter. There was something so sweet and winsome about her that you had to love her. That was all. But she was pleasant to look at big, clear, hazel eyes, and heaps of glossy brown hair, and an English skin. John and her were married at our house that night at early candle-lighting. Everybody from far and near was there to see it, and we all brought them down here afterwards. Mistress Selwyn lighted the fire, and we went away and left them sitting here, just as John had seen in that vision of his. A strange thing! A strange thing! But I've seen a terrible lot of strange things in my time." Captain Jim shook his head sagely. "'It's a dear story,' said Anne, feeling that for once she had got enough romance to satisfy her. "'How long did they live here?' Fifteen years. I ran off to sea soon after they were married, like the young scallywag I was. But every time I come back from a voyage I'd head for here, even before I went home, and tell Mistress Selwyn all about it. Fifteen happy years. They had a sort of talent for happiness, them two. Some folks are like that, if you've noticed. They couldn't be unhappy for long, no matter what happened. They quarrelled once or twice, for they was both high-spirited. But Mistress Selwyn says to me once, says she, laughing in that pretty way of hers, I felt dreadful when John and I quarrelled, but underneath it all I was very happy, because I had such a nice husband to quarrel with and make it up with. Then they moved to Charlottetown, and Ned Russell bought this house and brought his bride here. They were a gay young pair, as I remember them. Miss Elizabeth Russell was Alec's sister. She came to live with them a year or so later, and she was a creature of mirth, too. The walls of this house must be sort of soaked with laughing and good times. You're the third bride I've seen come here, Mistress Blythe, and the handsomest." Captain Jim contrived to give his sunflower compliment the delicacy of a violet, and Anne wore it proudly. 
She was looking her best that night, with the bridal rose on her cheeks and the love-light in her eyes. Even gruff old Dr. Dave gave her an approving glance, and told his wife, as they drove home together, that that red-headed wife of the boy's was something of a beauty. "'I must be getting back to the light,' announced Captain Jim. "'I've enjoyed this evening something tremendous.' "'You must come often to see us,' said Anne. "'I wonder if you'd give that invitation if you knew how likely I'll be to accept it,' Captain Jim remarked whimsically. "'Which is another way of saying you wonder if I mean it,' smiled Anne. "'I do. Cross my heart, as we used to say at school. "'Then I'll come. You're likely to be pestered with me at any hour, and I'll be proud to have you drop down and visit me now and then, too. Generally I haven't anyone to talk to but the first mate, bless his sociable heart. He's a mighty good listener, and has forgot more than any McAllister of them all ever knew. But he isn't much of a conversationalist. You're young and I'm old, but our souls are about the same age, I reckon. We both belong to the race that knows Joseph, as Cornelia Bryant would say." "'The race that knows Joseph?' puzzled Anne. Yes, Cornelia divides all the folks in the world into two kinds—the race that knows Joseph and the race that don't. If a person sort of sees eye to eye with you and has pretty much the same ideas about things and the same taste in jokes, why, then he belongs to the race that knows Joseph." "'Oh, I understand,' exclaimed Anne, light breaking in upon her. "'It's what I used to call—and still call in quotation marks—kindred spirits.' "'Just so, just so,' agreed Captain Jim. We're it, whatever it is. When you come in tonight, Mistress Blythe, I says to myself, says I, yes, she's of the race that knows Joseph. And mighty glad I was, for if it wasn't so we couldn't have had any real satisfaction in each other's company. The race that knows Joseph is the salt of the earth, I reckon." The moon had just risen when Anne and Gilbert went to the door with their guests. Four Winds Harbor was beginning to be a thing of dream and glamour and enchantment, a spellbound haven where no tempest might ever raven. The Lombardies down the lane, tall and sombre as the priestly forms of some mystic band, were tipped with silver. "'Always liked Lombardies,' said Captain Jim, waving a long arm at them. "'They're the trees of princesses. They're out of fashion now. Folks complain that they die at the top and get ragged-looking. So they do.' So they do, if you don't risk your neck every spring climbing up a light ladder to trim them out. I always did it for Miss Elizabeth, so her Lombardies never got out at elbows. She was especially fond of them. She liked their dignity and standoffishness. They don't hobnob with every Tom, Dick, and Harry. If it's maples for company, Mistress Blythe, it's Lombardies for society." "'What a beautiful night,' said Mrs. Dr. Dave, as she climbed into the doctor's buggy. "'Most nights are beautiful,' said Captain Jim. But I allow that moonlight over four winds makes me sort of wonder what's left for heaven. The moon's a great friend of mine, Mistress Blythe. I've loved her ever since I can remember. When I was a little chap of eight I fell asleep in the garden one evening and wasn't missed. I woke up along in the night and I was most scared to death. What shadows and queer noises there was! I durstn't move. Just crouched there quaking, poor small mite. Seems if there weren't anyone in the world but myself, and it was mighty big. Then all at once I saw the moon looking down at me through the apple-boughs, just like an old friend. I was comforted right off, got up and walked to the house as brave as a lion looking at her. Many's the night I've watched her from the deck of my vessel on seas far away from here. Why don't you folks tell me to take in the slack of my jaw and go home?" The laughter of the good nights died away. Anne and Gilbert walked hand in hand around their garden. 
The brook that ran across the corner dimpled pellucidly in the shadows of the birches. The poppies along its banks were like shallow cups of moonlight. Flowers that had been planted by the hands of the schoolmaster's bride flung their sweetness on the shadowy air, like the beauty and blessing of sacred yesterdays. Anne paused in the gloom to gather a spray. "'I love to smell flowers in the dark,' she said. "'You get hold of their soul, then.' "'Oh, Gilbert, this little house is all I've dreamed it, and I'm so glad that we are not the first to have kept bridal tryst here.'" End of chapter 7「Miss Cornelia Bryant comes to call. That month of September was a month of golden mists and purple hazes at Four Winds Harbor, a month of sun-steeped days and of nights that were swimming in moonlight or pulsating with stars. No storm marred it, no rough wind blew. Anne and Gilbert put their nest in order rambled on the shores, sailed on the harbor, drove about four winds in the glen, or through the ferny, sequestered roads of the woods around the harbor head—in short, had such a honeymoon as any lovers in the world might have envied them. If life were to stop short just now, it would still have been richly worth while, just for the sake of these past four weeks, wouldn't it?" said Anne. I don't suppose we will ever have four such perfect weeks again. But we've had them everything—wind, weather, folks, house of dreams—has conspired to make our honeymoon delightful. There hasn't even been a rainy day since we came here." "'And we haven't quarrelled once,' teased Gilbert. "'Well, that's a pleasure all the greater for being deferred,' quoted Anne. "'I'm so glad we decided to spend our honeymoon here. Our memories of it will always belong here, in our house of dreams, instead of being scattered about in strange places. There was a certain tang of romance and adventure in the atmosphere of their new home, which Anne had never found in Avonlea. There, although she had lived in sight of the sea, it had not entered intimately into her life. In four winds it surrounded her and called to her constantly. From every window of her new home she saw some varying aspect of it. Its haunting murmur was ever in her ears. Vessels sailed up the harbor every day to the wharf at the glen, or sailed out again through the sunset, bound for ports that might be halfway around the globe. Fishing-boats went white-winged down the channel in the mornings, and returned laden in the evenings. Sailors and fisher-folk travelled the red, winding harbor roads, light-hearted and content. There was always a certain sense of things going to happen, of adventures and farings forth. The ways of four winds were less staid and settled and grooved than those of Avonlea. Winds of change blew over them, the sea called ever to the dwellers on shore, and even those who might not answer its call felt the thrill and unrest and mystery and possibilities of it. "'I understand now why some men must go to sea,' said Anne. "'That desire which comes to us all at times, to sail beyond the bourne of sunset, must be very imperious when it is born in you. I don't wonder Captain Jim ran away because of it. I never see a ship sailing out of the channel, or a gull soaring over the sandbar, without wishing I were on board the ship, or had wings—not like a dove, to fly away and be at rest, but like a gull, to sweep out into the very heart of a storm. "'You'll stay right here with me, Anne-girl,' said Gilbert lazily. "'I won't have you flying away from me into the hearts of storms.'" 
They were sitting on their red sandstone doorstep in the late afternoon. Great tranquillities were all about them in land and sea and sky. Silvery gulls were soaring over them. The horizons were laced with long trails of frail, pinkish clouds. The hushed air was threaded with a murmurous refrain of minstrel winds and waves. Pale asters were blowing in the sere and misty meadows between them and the harbor. Doctors who have to be up all night waiting on sick folk don't feel very adventurous, I suppose," Anne said indulgently. If you had had a good sleep last night, Gilbert, you'd be as ready as I am for a flight of imagination." "'I did good work last night, Anne,' said Gilbert quietly. "'Under God I saved a life. This is the first time I could ever really claim that. In other cases I may have helped, but Anne, if I had not stayed at Allenby's last night and fought death hand to hand, that woman would have died before morning. I tried an experiment that was certainly never tried in Four Winds before. I doubt if it was ever tried anywhere before outside of a hospital. It was a new thing in Kingsport Hospital last winter. I could never have dared try it here if I had not been absolutely certain that there was no other chance. I risked it, and it succeeded. As a result, a good wife and mother is saved for long years of happiness and usefulness. As I drove home this morning, while the sun was rising over the harbor, I thanked God that I had chosen the profession I did. I had fought a good fight and won. Think of it, Anne. Won against the great destroyer. It's what I dreamed of doing long ago, when we talked together of what we wanted to do in life. That dream of mine came true this morning." "'Was that the only one of your dreams that has come true?' asked Anne, who knew perfectly well what the substance of his answer would be but wanted to hear it again. "'You know, Anne-girl,' said Gilbert, smiling into her eyes. At that moment there were certainly two perfectly happy people sitting on the doorstep of a little white house on the Four Winds harbor shore. Presently Gilbert said with a change of tone, "'Do I or do I not see a full-rigged ship sailing up our lane?' Anne looked and sprang up. "'That must be either Miss Cornelia Bryant or Mrs. Moore coming to call,' she said. "'I'm going into the office, and if it is Miss Cornelia, I warn you that I'll eavesdrop,' said Gilbert. "'From all I've heard regarding Miss Cornelia, I conclude that her conversation will not be dull, to say the least.' "'It may be Mrs. Moore.' "'I don't think Mrs. Moore is built on those lines. I saw her working in her garden the other day, and though I was too far away to see clearly, I thought she was rather slender.' She doesn't seem very socially inclined when she has never called on you yet, although she's your nearest neighbor. She can't be like Mrs. Lynde after all, or curiosity would have brought her," said Anne. This caller is, I think, Miss Cornelia. Miss Cornelia it was. Moreover, Miss Cornelia had not come to make any brief and fashionable wedding call. She had her work under her arm at a substantial parcel, and when Anne asked her to stay she promptly took off her capacious sun-hat, which had been held on her head, despite irreverent September breezes, by a tight elastic band under her hard little knob of fair hair. No hat-pins for Miss Cornelia, an it please you. Elastic bands had been good enough for her mother, and they were good enough for her. She had a fresh, round, pink-and-white face and jolly brown eyes. She did not look in the least like the traditional old maid, and there was something in her expression which won Anne instantly. With her old instinctive quickness to discern kindred spirits, she knew she was going to like Miss Cornelia, in spite of uncertain oddities of opinion and certain oddities of attire. 
Nobody but Miss Cornelia would have come to make a call, arrayed in a striped blue-and-white apron and a wrapper of chocolate print, with a design of huge pink roses scattered over it. And nobody but Miss Cornelia could have looked dignified and suitably garbed in it. Had Miss Cornelia been entering a palace to call on a prince's bride, she would have been just as dignified and just as wholly mistress of the situation. She would have trailed her rose-spattered flounce over the marble floors just as unconcernedly, and she would have proceeded just as calmly to disabuse the mind of the princess of any idea that the possession of a mere man, be he prince or peasant, was anything to brag of. "'I've brought my work, Mrs. Blythe, dearie,' she remarked, unrolling some dainty material. "'I'm in a hurry to get this done, and there isn't any time to lose.' Anne looked in some surprise at the white garment spread over Miss Cornelia's ample lap. It was certainly a baby's dress, and it was most beautifully made, with tiny frills and tucks. Miss Cornelia adjusted her glasses and fell to embroidering with exquisite stitches. "'This is for Mrs. Fred Proctor up at the Glen,' she announced. "'She's expecting her eighth baby any day now, and not a stitch has she ready for it. The other seven have wore out all she made for the first, and she's never had time or strength or spirit to make any more. That woman is a martyr, Mrs. Blythe, believe me. When she married Fred Proctor, I knew how it would turn out. He was one of your wicked, fascinating men. After he got married he left off being fascinating and just kept on being wicked. He drinks and he neglects his family. Isn't that like a man? I don't know how Mrs. Proctor would ever keep her children decently clothed if her neighbors didn't help her out. As Anne was afterwards to learn, Miss Cornelia was the only neighbor who troubled herself much about the decency of the young Proctors. "'When I heard this eighth baby was coming, I decided to make some things for it,' Miss Cornelia went on. "'This is the last, and I want to finish it today.' "'It's certainly very pretty,' said Anne. "'I'll get my sewing, and we'll have a little thimble party of two. You're a beautiful sewer, Miss Bryant.' "'Yes, I'm the best sewer in these parts.' said Miss Cornelia in a matter-of-fact tone. I ought to be. Lord, I've done more of it than if I'd had a hundred children of my own, believe me. I suppose I'm a fool to be putting hand embroidery on this dress for an eighth baby. But, Lord, Mrs. Blythe, dearie, it isn't to blame for being the eighth. And I kind of wished it to have one real pretty dress, just as if it was wanted. Nobody's wanting the poor mite, so I put some extra fuss on its little things just on that account." Any baby might be proud of that dress," said Anne, feeling still more strongly that she was going to like Miss Cornelia. "'I suppose you've been thinking I was never coming to call on you,' resumed Miss Cornelia. "'But this is the harvest month, you know, and I've been busy, and a lot of extra hands hanging around eating more than they work, just like the men. I'd have come yesterday, but I went to Mrs. Roderick McAllister's funeral. At first I thought my head was aching so badly I couldn't enjoy myself if I did go. But she was a hundred years old and I'd always promised myself that I'd go to her funeral." "'Was it a successful function?' asked Anne, noticing that the office door was ajar. "'What's that? Oh, yes, it was a tremendous funeral. She had a very large connection. There was over one hundred and twenty carriages in the procession. There was one or two funny things happened. I thought that die I would to see old Jaw Bradshaw, who is an infidel and never darkens the door of a church, singing Safe in the Arms of Jesus with great gusto and fervor. He glories in singing. That's why he never misses a funeral. Poor Mrs. Bradshaw didn't look much like singing. All wore out slaving. Old Joe starts out once in a while to buy her a present, and brings home some new kind of farm machinery. Isn't that like a man? But what else would you expect of a man who never goes to church, even a Methodist one? 
I was real thankful to see you and the young doctor in the Presbyterian church your first Sunday. No doctor for me who isn't a Presbyterian." "'We were in the Methodist church last Sunday evening,' said Anne wickedly. "'Oh, I suppose Dr. Blythe has to go to the Methodist church once in a while or he wouldn't get the Methodist practice.' We liked the sermon very much," declared Anne boldly, and I thought the Methodist minister's prayer was one of the most beautiful I ever heard. Oh, I've no doubt he can pray. I never heard anyone make more beautiful prayers than old Simon Bentley, who was always drunk, or hoping to be, and the drunker he was the better he prayed. The Methodist minister is very fine-looking," said Anne, for the benefit of the office door. Yes, he's quite ornamental," agreed Miss Cornelia. Oh, and very ladylike and he thinks that every girl who looks at him falls in love with him, as if a Methodist minister wandering about like any Jew was such a prize. If you and the young doctor take my advice, you won't have much to do with the Methodists. My motto is, if you are a Presbyterian, be a Presbyterian." "'Don't you think that Methodists go to heaven as well as Presbyterians?' asked Anne smilelessly. "'That isn't for us to decide. It's in higher hands than ours said Miss Cornelia solemnly. But I ain't going to associate with them on earth whatever I may have to do in heaven. This Methodist minister isn't married. The last one they had was, and his wife was the silliest, flightiest little thing I ever saw. I told her husband once that he should have waited till she was grown up before he married her. He said he wanted to have the training of her. Wasn't that like a man?" "'It's rather hard to decide just when people are grown up,' laughed Anne. "'That's a true word, dearie. Some are grown up when they're born, and others ain't grown up when they're eighty, believe me. That same Mrs. Roderick I was speaking of never grew up. She was as foolish when she was a hundred as she was when she was ten. Perhaps that was why she lived so long," suggested Anne. Maybe twas. I'd rather live fifty sensible years than a hundred foolish ones. But just think what a dull world it would be if everyone was sensible," pleaded Anne. Miss Cornelia disdained any skirmish of flippant epigram. Mrs. Roderick was a Milgrave, and the Milgraves never had much sense. Her nephew, Ebenezer Milgrave, used to be insane for years. He believed he was dead, and used to rage at his wife because she wouldn't bury him. I'd a done it." Miss Cornelia looked so grimly determined that Anne could almost see her with a spade in her hand. "'Don't you know any good husbands, Miss Bryant?' "'Oh, yes, lots of them over yonder.' said Miss Cornelia, waving her hand through the open window towards the little graveyard of the church across the harbor. "'But living, going about in the flesh?' persisted Anne. "'Oh, there's a few, just to show that with God all things are possible,' acknowledged Miss Cornelia reluctantly. "'I don't deny that an odd man here and there, if he's caught young and trained up proper, and if his mother has spanked him well beforehand, may turn out a decent being. Your husband now isn't so bad, as men go from all I hear. I suppose—Miss Cornelia looked sharply at Anne over her glasses—you think there's nobody like him in the world." "'There isn't,' said Anne promptly. "'Ah, well, I heard another bride say that once,' sighed Miss Cornelia. Jenny Dean thought when she married that there wasn't anybody like her husband in the world. And she was right. There wasn't. And a good thing, too, believe me. He led her an awful life and he was courting his second wife while Jenny was dying. Wasn't that like a man? However, I hope your confidence will be better justified, dearie. The young doctor is taking real well. I was afraid at first he mightn't, for folks hereabouts have always thought old Dr. Dave the only doctor in the world. Dr. Dave hadn't much tact, to be sure. He was always talking of ropes and houses where someone had hanged himself. 
but folks forgot their hurt feelings when they had a pain in their stomachs. If he'd been a minister instead of a doctor they'd never have forgiven him. Soul ache doesn't worry folks near as much as stomach ache. Seeing as we're both Presbyterians and no Methodists around, will you tell me your candid opinion of our minister?" "'Well, really, I—well,' hesitated Anne. Miss Cornelia nodded. "'Exactly. I agree with you, dearie. We made a mistake when we called him. His face just looks like one of those long, narrow stones in the graveyard, doesn't it? Sacred to the memory ought to be written on his forehead. I shall never forget the first sermon he preached after he came. It was on the subject of every one doing what they were best fitted for—a very good subject, of course, but such illustrations as he used. He said, "'If you had a cow and an apple-tree, and if you tied the apple-tree in your stable and planted the cow in your orchard with her legs up, how much milk would you get from the apple-tree, or how many apples from the cow? Did you ever hear the like in your born days, dearie? I was so thankful there were no Methodists there that day. They'd never have been done hooting over it. But what I dislike most in him is his habit of agreeing with everybody, no matter what is said. If you said to him, "'You're a scoundrel,' he'd say with that smooth smile of his, "'Yes, that's so. A minister should have more backbone. The long and the short of it is, I consider him a reverend jackass. But, of course, this is just between you and me. When there are Methodists in hearing, I praise him to the skies. Some folks think his wife dresses too gay, but I say when she has to live with a face like that she needs something to cheer her up. You'll never hear me condemning a woman for her dress. I'm only too thankful when her husband isn't too mean and miserly to allow it. Not that I bother much with dress myself. Women just dress to please the men, and I'd never stoop to that. I've had a real placid, comfortable life, dearie, and it's just because I never cared a cent what the men thought." Why do you hate the men so, Miss Bryant?" Lord, dearie, I don't hate them. They aren't worth it. I just sort of despise them. I think I'll like your husband if he keeps on as he has begun. But apart from him, about the only men in the world I've much use for are the old doctor and Captain Jim." "'Captain Jim is certainly splendid,' agreed Anne cordially. "'Captain Jim is a good man, but he's kind of vexing in one way. You can't make him mad. I've tried for twenty years and he just keeps on being placid. It does sort of rile me. And I suppose the woman he should have married got a man who went into tantrums twice a day." "'Who was she?' "'Oh, I don't know, dearie. I never remember of Captain Jim making up to anybody. He was edging on old as far as my memory goes. He's seventy-six, you know. I never heard any reason for his staying a bachelor, but there must be one, believe me. He sailed all his life till five years ago, and there's no corner of the earth he hasn't poked his nose into. He and Elizabeth Russell were great cronies all their lives, but they never had any notion of sweethearting. Elizabeth never married, though she had plenty of chances. She was a great beauty when she was young. The year the Prince of Wales came to the island she was visiting her uncle in Charlottetown, and he was a government official, and so she got invited to the great ball. She was the prettiest girl there, and the Prince danced with her, and all the other women he didn't dance with were furious about it, because their social standing was higher than hers, and they said he shouldn't have passed them over. Elizabeth was always very proud of that dance. Mean folks said that was why she never married—she couldn't put up with an ordinary man after dancing with a Prince. But that wasn't so. She told me the reason once. It was because she had such a temper that she was afraid she couldn't live peaceably with any man. She had an awful temper. She used to have to go upstairs and bite pieces out of her bureau to keep it down by times. But I told her that wasn't any reason for not marrying if she wanted to. There's no reason why we should let the men have a monopoly of temper, is there, Mrs. Blythe, dearie?" 
I've a bit of a temper myself," sighed Anne. "'It's well you have, dearie. You won't be half so likely to be trodden on, believe me. My, how that golden glow of yours is blooming. Your garden looks fine. Poor Elizabeth always took such care of it.' "'I love it,' said Anne. "'I'm glad it's so full of old-fashioned flowers. Speaking of gardening, we want to get a man to dig up that little lot beyond the fir grove and set it out with strawberry plants for us. Gilbert is so busy he will never get the time for it this fall. Do you know anyone we can get?" "'Well, Henry Hammond up at the Glen goes out doing jobs like that. He'll do, maybe. He's always a heap more interested in his wages than in his work, just like a man, and he's so slow in the uptake that he stands still for five minutes before it dawns on him that he stopped. His father threw a stump at him when he was small. Nice gentle missile, wasn't it? So like a man. Of Course the boy never got over it. But he's the only one I can recommend at all. He painted my house for me last spring. It looks real nice now, don't you think?" Anne was saved by the clock striking five. "'Good Lord, is it that late?' exclaimed Miss Cornelia. "'How time does slip by when you're enjoying yourself. Well, I must betake myself home.' "'No, indeed. You're going to stay and have tea with us,' said Anne eagerly. "'Are you asking me because you think you ought to, or because you really want to?' demanded Miss Cornelia. "'Because I really want to. Then I'll stay. You belong to the race that knows Joseph." "'I know we're going to be friends,' said Anne, with the smile that only they of the household of faith ever saw. "'Yes, we are, dearie. Thank goodness we can choose our friends. We have to take our relatives as they are, and be thankful if there are no penitentiary birds among them. Not that I've many, none nearer than second cousins. I'm kind of a lonely soul, Mrs. Blythe.' There was a wistful note in Miss Cornelia's voice. "'I wish you would call me Anne,' exclaimed Anne impulsively. "'It would seem more homey. Everyone in Four Winds except my husband calls me Mrs. Blythe, and it makes me feel like a stranger. Do you know that your name is very near being the one I yearned after when I was a child? I hated Anne, and I called myself Cordelia in imagination. I like Anne. It was my mother's name. Old-fashioned names are the best and sweetest, in my opinion. If you're going to get tea, you might send the young doctor to talk to me. He's been lying on the sofa in that office ever since I came, laughing fit to kill over what I've been saying." "'How did you know?' cried Anne, too aghast at this instance of Miss Cornelia's uncanny prescience to make a polite denial. "'I saw him sitting beside you when I came up the lane, and I know men's tricks,' retorted Miss Cornelia. "'There. I've finished my little dress, dearie, and the eighth baby can come as soon as it pleases.' End of chapter 8「An Evening at Four Winds Point」It was late September when Anne and Gilbert were able to pay Four Winds Light their promised visit. They had often planned to go, but something always occurred to prevent them. Captain Jim had dropped in several times at the little house. "'I don't stand on ceremony, Mistress Blythe,' he told Anne. "'It's a real pleasure to me to come here, and I'm not going to deny myself just because you haven't got down to see me. There oughtn't to be no bargaining like that among the race that knows Joseph. I'll come when I can, and you come when you can, and so long's we have our pleasant little chat, it don't matter a mite what roof's over us.' Captain Jim took a great fancy to Gog and Magog, who were presiding over the destinies of the hearth in the little house, with as much dignity and aplomb as they had done at Patty's place. 
"'Aren't they the cutest little cusses?' he would say delightedly, and he bade them greeting and farewell as gravely and invariably as he did his host and hostess. Captain Jim was not going to offend household deities by any lack of reverence and ceremony. "'You've made this little house just about perfect,' he told Anne. "'It never was so nice before. Mistress Selwyn had your taste, and she did wonders. But folks in those days didn't have the pretty little curtains and pictures and knick-knacks you have. As for Elizabeth, she lived in the past. You've kind of brought the future into it, so to speak. I'd be real happy even if we couldn't talk at all when I come here. Just to sit and look at you and your pictures and your flowers would be enough of a treat. It's beautiful.' beautiful. Captain Jim was a passionate worshipper of beauty. Every lovely thing heard or seen gave him a deep, subtle inner joy that irradiated his life. He was quite keenly aware of his own lack of outward comeliness, and lamented it. "'Folks say I'm good,' he remarked whimsically upon one occasion. "'But I sometimes wish the Lord had made me only half as good, and put the rest of it into looks. But there—' I reckon he knew what he was about, as a good captain should. Some of us have to be homely, or the purty ones, like Mistress Blythe here, wouldn't show up so well." One evening Anne and Gilbert finally walked down to the Four Winds Light. The day had begun somberly in gray cloud and mist, but it had ended in a pomp of scarlet and gold. Over the western hills beyond the harbor were amber deeps and crystalline shadows, with the fire of sunset below. The north was a mackerel sky of little, fiery, golden clouds. The red light flamed on the white sails of a vessel gliding down the channel, bound to a southern port in a land of palms. Beyond her it smote upon and incarnadined the shining, white, grassless faces of the sand-dunes. To the right it fell on the old house among the willows up the brook, and gave it for a fleeting space casements more splendid than those of an old cathedral. They glowed out of its quiet and grayness like the throbbing, blood-red thoughts of a vivid soul imprisoned in a dull husk of environment. "'That old house up the brook always seems so lonely,' said Anne. "'I never see visitors there. Of course, its lane opens on the upper road, but I don't think there's much coming and going. It seems odd we've never met the Moors yet, when they live within fifteen minutes' walk of us. I may have seen them in church, of course, but if so I didn't know them.' I'm sorry they're so unsociable when there are only near neighbors." "'Evidently they don't belong to the race that knows Joseph,' laughed Gilbert. "'Have you ever found out who that girl was whom you thought so beautiful?' "'No. Somehow I have never remembered to ask about her. But I've never seen her anywhere, so I suppose she must have been a stranger. Oh, the sun has just vanished, and there's the light.' As the dusk deepened, the great beacon cut swathes of light through it, sweeping in a circle over the fields in the harbor, the sandbar and the gulf. "'I feel as if it might catch me and whisk me leagues out to sea,' said Anne, as one drenched them with radiance, and she felt rather relieved when they got so near the point that they were inside the range of those dazzling recurrent flashes. As they turned into the little lane that led across the fields to the point, they met a man coming out of it—a man of such extraordinary appearance that for a moment they both frankly stared. He was a decidedly fine-looking person—tall, broad-shouldered, well-featured, with a Roman nose and frank gray eyes. He was dressed in a prosperous farmer's Sunday best. In so far he might have been any inhabitant of Four Winds or the Glen but flowing over his breast, nearly to his knees, was a river of crinkly brown beard, 
and adown his back, beneath his commonplace felt hat, was a corresponding cascade of thick, wavy brown hair. "'Anne,' murmured Gilbert when they were out of earshot, "'you didn't put what Uncle Dave calls a little of the Scott Act in that lemonade you gave me just before we left home, did you?' "'No, I didn't,' said Anne, stifling her laughter, lest the retreating enigma should hear her. "'Who in the world can he be?' "'I don't know. But if Captain Jim keeps apparitions like that down at this point, I'm going to carry cold iron in my pocket when I come here. He wasn't a sailor, or one might pardon his eccentricity of appearance. He must belong to the over-harbor clans. Uncle Dave says they have several freaks over there.' "'Uncle Dave is a little prejudiced, I think.' You know all the over-harbor people who come to the Glen Church seem very nice. Oh, Gilbert, isn't this beautiful?" The Four Winds Light was built on a spur of red sandstone cliff jutting out into the gulf. On one side, across the channel, stretched the silvery sand-shore of the bar. On the other extended a long, curving beach of red cliffs, rising steeply from the pebbled coves. It was a shore that knew the magic and mystery of storm and star. There is a great solitude about such a shore. The woods are never solitary. They are full of whispering, beckoning, friendly life. But the sea is a mighty soul, forever moaning of some great, unshareable sorrow, which shuts it up into itself for all eternity. We can never pierce its infinite mystery. We may only wonder, awed and spellbound, on the outer fringe of it. The woods call to us with a hundred voices, but the sea has one only a mighty voice that drowns our souls in its majestic music. The woods are human, but the sea is of the company of the archangels." Anne and Gilbert found Captain Jim sitting on a bench outside the lighthouse, putting the finishing touches to a wonderful, full-rigged toy schooner. He rose and welcomed them to his abode with the gentle, unconscious courtesy that became him so well. "'This has been a pretty nice day all through, Mistress Blythe, and now, right at the last, it's brought its best.' "'Would you like to sit down here outside a bit while the light lasts? I've just finished this bit of a plaything for my little grandnephew Joe up at the Glen. After I promised to make it for him I was kind of sorry, for his mother was vexed. She's afraid he'll be wanting to go to sea later on, and she doesn't want the notion encouraged in him. But what could I do, Mistress Blythe? I'd promised him, and I think it's sort of real dastardly to break a promise you make to a child. Come, sit down. It won't take long to stay an hour.' The wind was offshore, and only broke the sea's surface into long, silvery ripples, and sent sheeny shadows flying out across it from every point and headland, like transparent wings. The dusk was hanging a curtain of violet gloom over the sand-dunes and the headlands where gulls were huddling. The sky was faintly filmed over with scarves of silken vapor. Cloud-fleets rode at anchor along the horizons. An evening star was watching over the bar. "'Isn't that a view worth looking at?' said Captain Jim, with a loving, proprietary pride. "'Nice and far from the marketplace, ain't it? No buying and selling and getting gain. You don't have to pay anything. All that sea and sky free, without money and without price. There's going to be a moonrise pretty soon, too. I'm never tired of finding out what a moonrise can be over them rocks and sea and harbor. There's a surprise in it every time.' They had their moonrise, and watched its marvel and magic in a silence that asked nothing of the world or each other. Then they went up into the tower, and Captain Jim showed and explained the mechanism of the great light. 
Finally they found themselves in the dining-room, where a fire of driftwood was weaving flames of wavering, elusive, sea-borne hues in the open fireplace. "'I put this fireplace in myself,' remarked Captain Jim. "'The government don't give lighthouse-keepers such luxuries. Look at the colors that wood makes. If you'd like some driftwood for your fire, Mistress Blythe, I'll bring you up a load some day. Sit down. I'm going to make you a cup of tea.' Captain Jim placed a chair for Anne, having first removed therefrom a huge orange-colored cat and a newspaper. "'Get down, matey. The sofa is your place. I must put this paper away safe till I can find time to finish the story in it. It's called A Mad Love. Tisn't my favorite brand of fiction, but I'm reading it just to see how long she can spin it out. It's at the sixty-second chapter now, and the wedding ain't any nearer than when it began, as far as I can see.' When little Joe comes I have to read him pirate yarns. Ain't it strange how innocent little creatures like children like the bloodthirstiest stories?" "'Like my lad Davy at home,' said Anne. He wants tales that reek with gore." Captain Jim's tea proved to be nectar. He was pleased as a child with Anne's compliments, but he affected a fine indifference. "'The secret is I don't skimp the cream,' he remarked airily. Captain Jim had never heard of Oliver Wendell Holmes, but he evidently agreed with that writer's dictum that Big Heart never liked Little Cream Pot. "'We met an odd-looking personage coming out of your lane,' said Gilbert as they sipped. "'Who was he?' Captain Jim grinned. "'That's Marshall Elliott. A mighty fine man, with just one streak of foolishness in him. I suppose you wondered what his object was in turning himself into a sort of dime-museum freak.' "'Is he a modern Nazarite, or a Hebrew prophet left over from olden times?' asked Anne. "'Neither of them. It's politics that's at the bottom of his freak. All those Elliots and Crawfords and McAllisters are dyed-in-the-wool politicians. They're born grit or Tory, as the case may be, and they live grit or Tory, and they die grit or Tory, and what they're going to do in heaven, where there's probably no politics, is more than I can fathom. This Marshall Elliot was a born grit. I'm a grit myself in moderation, but there's no moderation about Marshall. Fifteen years ago there was a specially bitter general election. Marshall fought for his party tooth and nail. He was dead sure the Liberals would win. So sure he got up at a public meeting and vowed that he wouldn't shave his face or cut his hair until the grits were in power. Well, they didn't go in, and they've never got in yet, and you saw the result today for yourselves. Marshall stuck to his word. "'What does his wife think of it?' asked Anne. "'He's a bachelor. But if he had a wife, I reckon she couldn't make him break that vow. That family of Elliot's has always been more stubborn than natural. Marshall's brother Alexander had a dog he set great store by, and when it died the man actually wanted to have it buried in the graveyard, along with the other Christians,' he said. "'Of course he wasn't allowed to, so he buried it just outside the graveyard fence, and never darkened the church door again.' but Sundays he'd drive his family to church and sit by that dog's grave and read his Bible all the time the service was going on. They say when he was dying he asked his wife to bury him beside the dog. She was a meek little soul, but she fired up at that. She said she wasn't going to be buried beside no dog, and if he'd rather have his last resting place beside the dog than beside her, just to say so. Alexander Elliot was a stubborn mule, but he was fond of his wife, so he give in and said, "'Well, durn it, bury me where you please. But when Gabriel's trump blows I expect my dog to rise with the rest of us, for he had as much soul as any durn Elliot or Crawford or McAllister that ever strutted.' Them was his parting words. 
As for Marshall, we're all used to him, but he must strike strangers as right-down peculiar-looking. I've known him ever since he was ten. He's about fifty now, and I like him. Him and me was out cod-fishing today. That's about all I'm good for now, catching trout and cod occasional. But t'weren't always so, not by no manner of means. I used to do other things, as you'd admit if you saw my life-book." Anne was just going to ask what his life-book was, when the first mate created a diversion by springing upon Captain Jim's knee. He was a gorgeous beastie, with a face as round as a full moon, vivid green eyes, and immense white double paws. Captain Jim stroked his velvet back gently. "'I never fancied cats much till I found the first mate,' he remarked, to the accompaniment of the mate's tremendous purrs. "'I saved his life. And when you've saved a creature's life you're bound to love it. It's next thing to giving life. There's some terrible thoughtless people in the world, Mistress Blythe. Some of them city folks who have summer homes over the harbor are so thoughtless that they're cruel. It's the worst kind of cruelty, the thoughtless kind. You can't cope with it. They keep cats there in the summer, and feed em and pet em and doll em up with ribbons and collars, and then in the fall they go off and leave em to starve or freeze. It makes my blood boil, Mistress Blythe. One day last winter I found a poor old mother-cat dead on the shore, lying against the skin-and-bone bodies of her three little kittens. She died trying to shelter him. She had her poor stiff paws around him. Master, I cried. Then I swore. Then I carried them poor little kittens home and fed em up and found good homes for em. I knew the woman who left the cat, and when she come back this summer I just went over the harbor and told her my opinion of her. It was rank meddling, but I do love meddling in a good cause. How did she take it?" asked Gilbert. Cried and said she didn't think. I says to her, says I, do you suppose that'll be held for a good excuse in the day of judgment, when you'll have to account for that poor old mother's life? The Lord'll ask you what he gave you brains for if it wasn't to think, I reckon. I don't fancy she'll leave cats to starve another time." "'Was the first mate one of the forsaken?' asked Anne, making advances to him which were responded to graciously if condescendingly. Yes. I found him one bitter cold day in winter, caught in the branches of a tree by his dern-full ribbon collar. He was almost starving. If you could have seen his eyes, Mistress Blythe! He was nothing but a kitten, and he'd got his living somehow since he'd been left until he got hung up. When I loosed him he gave my hand a pitiful swipe with his little red tongue. He wasn't the able seaman you see now. He was meek as Moses. That was nine years ago. His life has been long in the land for a cat. He's a good old pal, the first mate is." "'I should have expected you to have a dog,' said Gilbert. Captain Jim shook his head. "'I had a dog once. I thought so much of him that when he died I couldn't bear the thought of getting another in his place. He was a friend, you understand, Mistress Blythe? Matey's only a pal. I'm fond of Matey, all the fonder on account of the spice of devilment that's in him, like there is in all cats. But I loved my dog. I always had a sneaking sympathy for Alexander Elliot about his dog. There isn't any devil in a good dog. That's why they're more lovable than cats, I reckon. But I'm darned if they're as interesting. Here I am, talking too much. Why don't you check me? When I do get a chance to talk to anyone I run on terrible. If you've done your tea I've a few little things you might like to look at. Picked them up in the queer corners I used to be poking my nose into. Captain Jim's few little things turned out to be a most interesting collection of curios, hideous, quaint, and beautiful. And almost every one of them had some striking story attached to it. 
Anne never forgot the delight with which she listened to those old tales that moonlit evening by that enchanted driftwood fire, while the silver sea called to them through the open window and sobbed against the rocks below them. Captain Jim never said a boastful word, but it was impossible to help seeing what a hero the man had been—brave, true, resourceful, unselfish. He sat there in his little room and made those things live again for his hearers. By a lift of the eyebrow, a twist of the lip, a gesture, a word, he painted a whole scene or character so that they saw it as it was. Some of Captain Jim's adventures had such a marvelous edge that Anne and Gilbert secretly wondered if he were not drawing a rather long bow at their credulous expense. But in this, as they found later, they did him injustice. His tales were all literally true. Captain Jim had the gift of the born storyteller, whereby unhappy, far-off things can be brought vividly before the hearer in all their pristine poignancy. Anne and Gilbert laughed and shivered over his tales, and once Anne found herself crying. Captain Jim surveyed her tears with pleasure shining from his face. "'I like to see folks cry that way,' he remarked. "'It's a compliment. But I can't do justice to the things I've seen or helped to do. I've them all jotted down in my life-book, but I haven't got the knack of writing them out properly. If I could hit on just the right words and string them together proper on paper, I could make a great book. It would beat a mad love holler, and I believe Joe'd like it as well as the pirate yarns. Yes, I've had some adventures in my time. And you know, Mistress Blythe, I still lust after em. Yes, old and useless as I be, there's an awful longing sweeps over me at times to sail out. Out, out there forever and ever. Like Ulysses, you would sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until you die," said Anne dreamily. Ulysses! I've read of him. Yes, that's just how I feel. Just how all us old sailors feel, I reckon. I'll die on land after all, I suppose. Well, what is to be will be. There was an old William Ford at the Glen who never went on the water in his life because he was afraid of being drowned. A fortune-teller had predicted he would be, and one day he fainted and fell with his face in the barn trough and was drowned. Must you go? Well, come soon and come often. The doctor is to do the talking next time. He knows a heap of things I want to find out. I'm sort of lonesome here by times. It's been worse since Elizabeth Russell died. Her and me was such cronies. Captain Jim spoke with the pathos of the aged, who see their old friends slipping from them one by one, friends whose places can never be quite filled by those of a younger generation, even of the race that knows Joseph. Anne and Gilbert promised to come soon and often. "'He's a rare old fellow, isn't he?' said Gilbert as they walked home. "'Somehow I can't reconcile his simple, kindly personality with the wild, adventurous life he has lived,' mused Anne. You wouldn't find it so hard if you had seen him the other day down at the fishing village. One of the men of Peter Gautier's boat made a nasty remark about some girl along the shore. Captain Jim fairly scorched the wretched fellow with the lightning of his eyes. He seemed a man transformed. He didn't say much, but the way he said it. You'd have thought it would strip the flesh from the fellow's bones. I understand that Captain Jim will never allow a word against any woman to be said in his presence. I wonder why he never married," said Anne. He should have sons with their ships at sea now, and grandchildren climbing over him to hear his stories. He's that kind of a man. Instead, he has nothing but a magnificent cat. But Anne was mistaken. Captain Jim had more than that. He had a memory. 
End of chapter 9「Chapter Ten of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. Leslie Moore. I'm going for a walk to the outside shore tonight," Anne told Gog and Magog one October evening. There was no one else to tell, for Gilbert had gone over the harbor. Anne had her little domain in the speckless order one would expect of anyone brought up by Marilla Cuthbert, and felt that she could gad shoreward with a clear conscience. Many and delightful had been her shore rambles, sometimes with Gilbert, sometimes with Captain Jim, sometimes alone with her own thoughts and new, poignantly sweet dreams that were beginning to span life with their rainbows. She loved the gentle, misty harbor shore and the silvery, wind-haunted sand-shore, but best of all she loved the rock-shore with its cliffs and caves and piles of surf-worn boulders and its coves where the pebbles glittered under the pools and it was to this shore she hied herself to-night. There had been an autumn storm of wind and rain lasting for three days. Thunderous had been the crash of billows on the rocks, wild the white spray and spume that blew over the bar, troubled and misty and tempest-torn the erstwhile blue peace of Four Winds Harbor. Now it was over, and the shore lay clean-washed after the storm. Not a wind stirred, but there was still a fine surf on, dashing on sand and rock in a splendid white turmoil, the only restless thing in the great, pervading stillness and peace. "'Oh, this is a moment worth living through weeks of storm and stress for,' Anne exclaimed, delightedly sending her far gaze across the tossing waters from the top of the cliff where she stood. Presently she scrambled down the steep path to the little cove below, where she seemed shut in with rocks and sea and sky. "'I'm going to dance and sing,' she said. "'There's no one here to see me. The seagulls won't carry tales of the matter. I may be as crazy as I like.' She caught up her skirt and pirouetted along the hard strip of sand just out of reach of the waves that almost lapped her feet with their spent foam. Whirling round and round, laughing like a child, she reached the little headland that ran out to the east of the cove. Then she stopped suddenly, blushing crimson. She was not alone. There had been a witness to her dance and laughter. The girl of the golden hair and sea-blue eyes was sitting on a boulder of the headland, half hidden by a jutting rock. She was looking straight at Anne, with a strange expression—part wonder, part sympathy, part—could it be—envy? She was bareheaded, and her splendid hair, more than ever like Browning's gorgeous snake, was bound about her head with a crimson ribbon. She wore a dress of some dark material very plainly made, but swathed about her waist, outlining its fine curves, was a vivid girdle of red silk. Her hands, clasped over her knee, were brown and somewhat work-hardened, but the skin of her throat and cheeks was as white as cream. A flying gleam of sunset broke through a low-lying western cloud and fell across her hair. For a moment she seemed the spirit of the sea personified, all its mystery, all its passion, all its elusive charm. "'You—you you must think me crazy,' stammered Anne, trying to recover her self-possession. To be seen by this stately girl in such an abandon of childishness—she, Mrs. Dr. Blythe, with all the dignity of the matron to keep up—it was too bad. "'No,' said the girl. "'I don't.' She said nothing more. Her voice was expressionless, her manner slightly repellent. But there was something in her eyes—eager yet shy, defiant yet pleading—which turned Anne from her purpose of walking away. 
Instead, she sat down on the boulder beside the girl. "'Let's introduce ourselves,' she said, with the smile that had never yet failed to win confidence and friendliness. "'I am Mrs. Blythe, and I live in that little white house up the harbor shore.' "'Yes, I know,' said the girl. "'I am Leslie Moore—Mrs. Dick Moore,' she added stiffly. Anne was silent for a moment from sheer amazement. It had not occurred to her that this girl was married. There seemed nothing of the wife about her. And that she should be the neighbor whom Anne had pictured as a commonplace Forwind's housewife. Anne could not quickly adjust her mental focus to this astonishing change. "'Then—then then you live in that gray house up the brook,' she stammered. "'Yes. I should have gone over to call on you long ago,' said the other. She did not offer any explanation or excuse for not having gone. "'I wish you would come,' said Anne, recovering herself somewhat. "'We're such near neighbors we ought to be friends. That is the sole fault of Four Winds. There aren't quite enough neighbors. Otherwise it is perfection. You like it? Like it? I love it. It is the most beautiful place I ever saw.' "'I've never seen many places,' said Leslie Moore slowly. "'But I've always thought it was very lovely here. I—' I love it, too." She spoke as she looked, shyly yet eagerly. Anne had an odd impression that this strange girl—the word girl would persist—could say a good deal if she chose. "'I often come to the shore,' she added. "'So do I,' said Anne. "'It's a wonder we haven't met here before.' "'Probably you come earlier in the evening than I do. It is generally late, almost dark when I come. And I love to come just after a storm, like this. I don't like the sea so well when it's calm and quiet. I like the struggle and the crash and the noise." "'I love it in all its moods,' declared Anne. The sea at Four Winds is to me what Lover's Lane was at home. Tonight it seemed so free, so untamed. Something broke loose in me, too, out of sympathy. That was why I danced along the shore in that wild way. I didn't suppose anybody was looking, of course. If Miss Cornelia Bryant had seen me she would have foreboded a gloomy prospect for poor young Dr. Blythe. "'You know Miss Cornelia?' said Leslie, laughing. She had an exquisite laugh. It bubbled up suddenly and unexpectedly with something of the delicious quality of a baby's. Anne laughed, too. "'Oh, yes. She's been down to my house of dreams several times.' "'Your house of dreams?' "'Oh, that's a dear, foolish little name Gilbert and I have for our home. We just call it that between ourselves. It slipped out before I thought.' "'So Miss Russell's little white house is your house of dreams,' said Leslie, wonderingly. "'I had a house of dreams once. But it was a palace,' she added with a laugh, the sweetness of which was marred by a little note of derision. "'Oh, I once dreamed of a palace, too,' said Anne. "'I suppose all girls do. And then we settle down contentedly in eight-room houses that seem to fulfill all the desires of our hearts, because our prince is there. You should have had your palace, really, though. You're so beautiful.' You must let me say it. It has to be said. I'm nearly bursting with admiration. You are the loveliest thing I ever saw, Mrs. Moore." "'If we are to be friends you must call me Leslie,' said the other with an odd passion. "'Of course I will. And my friends call me Anne.' "'I suppose I am beautiful,' Leslie went on, looking stormily out to sea. "'I hate my beauty. I wish I had always been as brown and plain as the brownest and plainest girl at the fishing village over there. Well, what do you think of Miss Cornelia?' The abrupt change of subject shut the door on any further confidences. "'Miss Cornelia is a darling, isn't she?' said Anne. "'Gilbert and I were invited to her house to a state tea last week. You've heard of groaning tables.' I seem to recall seeing the expression in the newspaper reports of weddings. 
said Leslie, smiling. Well, Miss Cornelia's groaned. At least it creaked, positively. You couldn't have believed she would have cooked so much for two ordinary people. She had every kind of pie you could name, I think, except lemon pie. She said she had taken the prize for lemon pies at the Charlottetown exhibition ten years ago, and had never made any since for fear of losing her reputation for them. Were you able to eat enough pie to please her? I wasn't. Gilbert won her heart by eating—I won't tell you how much. She said she never knew a man who didn't like pie better than his Bible. Do you know I love Miss Cornelia? So do I, said Leslie. She is the best friend I have in the world. Anne wondered secretly why, if this were so, Miss Cornelia had never mentioned Mrs. Dick Moore to her. Miss Cornelia had certainly talked freely about every other individual, in or near Four Winds. "'Isn't that beautiful?' said Leslie, after a brief silence, pointing to the exquisite effect of a shaft of light falling through a cleft in the rock behind them, across a dark green pool at its base. "'If I had come here and seen nothing but just that, I would go home satisfied.' "'The effects of light and shadow all along these shores are wonderful,' agreed Anne. "'My little sewing-room looks out on the harbour, and I sit at its window and feast my eyes. The colours and shadows are never the same two minutes together.' "'And you're never lonely?' asked Leslie abruptly. "'Never, when you were alone?' "'No. I don't think I've ever been really lonely in my life,' answered Anne. "'Even when I'm alone I have real good company—dreams and imaginations and pretendings. I like to be alone now and then, just to think over things and taste them. But I love friendship, and nice, jolly little times with people. Oh, won't you come see me? Often? Please do. I believe," Anne added, laughing, that you'd like me if you knew me. I wonder if you would like me," said Leslie seriously. She was not fishing for a compliment. She looked out across the waves that were beginning to be garlanded with blossoms of moonlit foam, and her eyes filled with shadows. I'm sure I would," said Anne. And please, don't think I'm utterly irresponsible because you saw me dancing on the shore at sunset. No doubt I shall be dignified after a time. You see, I haven't been married very long. I feel like a girl, and sometimes like a child, yet." I have been married twelve years," said Leslie. Here was another unbelievable thing. Why, you can't be as old as I am!" exclaimed Anne. You must have been a child when you were married. I was sixteen said Leslie, rising, and picking up the cap and jacket lying beside her. I am twenty-eight now. Well, I must go back. So must I. Gilbert will probably be home. But I'm so glad we both came to the shore tonight and met each other." Leslie said nothing, and Anne was a little chilled. She had offered friendship frankly, but it had not been accepted very graciously, if it had not been absolutely repelled. In silence they climbed the cliffs and walked across a pasture-field of which the feathery, bleached, wild grasses were like a carpet of creamy velvet in the moonlight. When they reached the shore-lane, Leslie turned. "'I go this way, Mrs. Blythe. You will come over and see me sometime, won't you?' Anne felt as if the invitation had been thrown at her. She got the impression that Leslie Moore gave it reluctantly. "'I will come if you really want me to,' she said a little coldly. "'Oh, I do, I do!' exclaimed Leslie, with an eagerness which seemed to burst forth and beat down some restraint that had been imposed on it. "'Then I'll come. Good night, Leslie. Good night, Mrs. Blythe.' Anne walked home in a brown study and poured out her tale to Gilbert. "'So Mrs. Dick Moore isn't one of the race that knows Joseph?' said Gilbert teasingly. "'No, not exactly. And yet—' 
I think she was one of them once, but has gone or got into exile," said Anne musingly. She is certainly very different from the other women about here. You can't talk about eggs and butter to her. To think I've been imagining her a second Mrs. Rachel Lynde. Have you ever seen Dick Moore, Gilbert? No. I've seen several men working about the fields of the farm, but I don't know which was more. She never mentioned him. I know she isn't happy. From what you tell me, I suppose she was married before she was old enough to know her own mind or heart, and found out too late that she had made a mistake. It's a common tragedy enough, Anne. A fine woman would have made the best of it. Mrs. Moore has evidently let it make her bitter and resentful." "'Don't let us judge her till we know,' pleaded Anne. "'I don't believe her case is so ordinary. You will understand her fascination when you meet her, Gilbert. It is a thing quite apart from her beauty. I feel that she possesses a rich nature into which a friend might enter as into a kingdom, but for some reason she bars every one out and shuts all her possibilities up in herself so that they cannot develop and blossom. There. I've been struggling to define her to myself ever since I left her, and that is the nearest I can get to it. I'm going to ask Miss Cornelia about her. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Story of Leslie Moore. Yes, the eighth baby arrived a fortnight ago, said Miss Cornelia from a rocker before the fire of the little house one chilly October afternoon. It's a girl. Fred was ranting mad, said he wanted a boy, when the truth is he didn't want it at all. If it had been a boy, he'd have ranted because it wasn't a girl. They had four girls and three boys before, so I can't see that it made much difference what this one was, but of course he'd have to be cantankerous, just like a man. The baby is real pretty, dressed up in its nice little clothes. It has black eyes and the dearest tiny hands. I must go and see it. I just love babies," said Anne, smiling to herself over a thought too dear and sacred to be put into words. I don't say but what they're nice," admitted Miss Cornelia, but some folks seem to have more than they really need, believe me. My poor cousin Flora up at the Glen had eleven, and such a slave as she is. Her husband suicided three years ago, just like a man. What made him do that? asked Anne, rather shocked. Couldn't get his way over something, so he jumped into the well. A good riddance. He was a born tyrant, but of course it spoiled the well. Flora could never abide the thought of using it again, poor thing. So she had another dug, and a frightful expense it was, and the water as hard as nails. If he had to drown himself there was plenty of water in the harbour, wasn't there? I've no patience with a man like that. We've only had two suicides in Four Winds in my recollection. The other was Frank West, Leslie Moore's father. By the way, has Leslie ever been over to call on you yet?" "'No, but I met her on the shore a few nights ago and we scraped an acquaintance,' said Anne, pricking up her ears. Miss Cornelia nodded. "'I'm glad, dearie. I was hoping you'd foregather with her. What do you think of her?' "'I thought her very beautiful.' Oh, of course. There was never anybody about four winds could touch her for looks. Did you ever see her hair? It reaches to her feet when she lets it down. But I meant, how did you like her?" "'I think I could like her very much if she'd let me,' said Anne slowly. But she wouldn't let you. She pushed you off and kept you at arm's length. Poor Leslie. You wouldn't be much surprised if you knew what her life has been. It's been a tragedy. A tragedy,' repeated Miss Cornelia emphatically. "'I wish you would tell me all about her. That is, if you can do so without betraying any confidence. 
"'Lord, dearie, everybody in Four Winds knows poor Leslie's story. It's no secret. The outside, that is. Nobody knows the inside but Leslie herself, and she doesn't take folks into her confidence. I'm about the best friend she has on earth, I reckon, and she's never uttered a word of complaint to me. Have you ever seen Dick Moore?' "'No.' Well, I may as well begin at the beginning and tell you everything straight through so you'll understand it. As I said, Leslie's father was Frank West. He was clever and shiftless, just like a man. Oh, he had heaps of brains, and much good they did him. He started to go to college, and he went for two years, and then his health broke down. The Wests were all inclined to be consumptive. So Frank came home and started farming. He married Rose Elliott from Over Harbor. Rose was reckoned the beauty of Four Winds. Leslie takes her looks from her mother, but she has ten times the spirit and go that Rose had, and a far better figure. Now you know, Anne, I always take the ground that us women ought to stand by each other. We've got enough to endure at the hands of the men the Lord knows, so I hold we hadn't ought to clapper-claw one another, and it isn't often you'll find me running down another woman. But I never had much use for Rose Elliot. She was spoiled to begin with, believe me, and she was nothing but a lazy, selfish, whining creature. Frank was no hand to work, so they were as poor as Job's turkey. Poor! They lived on potatoes and point, believe me. They had two children, Leslie and Kenneth. Leslie had her mother's looks and her father's brains, and something she didn't get from either of them. She took after her grandmother West, a splendid old lady. She was the brightest, friendliest, merriest thing when she was a child, Anne. Everybody liked her. She was her father's favorite, and she was awful fond of him. They were chums, as she used to say. She couldn't see any of his faults, and he was a taking sort of man in some ways. Well, when Leslie was twelve years old, the first dreadful thing happened. She worshipped little Kenneth. He was four years younger than her, and he was a dear little chap. And he was killed one day, fell off a big load of hay just as it was going into the barn, and the wheel went right over his little body and crushed the life out of it. And mind you, Anne, Leslie saw it. She was looking down from the loft. She gave one screech. The hired man said he never heard such a sound in all his life. He said it would ring in his ears till Gabriel's trump drove it out. But she never screeched or cried again about it. She jumped from the loft onto the load, and from the load to the floor, and caught up the little, bleeding, warm, dead body Anne. They had to tear it from her before she would let it go. They sent for me. I can't talk of it. Miss Cornelia wiped the tears from her kindly brown eyes, and sewed in bitter silence for a few minutes. "'Well,' she resumed, "'it was all over. They buried little Kenneth in that graveyard over the harbor, and after a while Leslie went back to her school and her studies. She never mentioned Kenneth's name. I've never heard it cross her lips from that day to this. I reckon that old hurt still aches and burns at times. But she was only a child, and time is real kind to children, Anne dearie.' After a while she began to laugh again. She had the prettiest laugh. You don't often hear it now." "'I heard it once the other night,' said Anne. It is a beautiful laugh." Frank West began to go down after Kenneth's death. He wasn't strong, and it was a shock to him, because he was real fond of the child, though, as I've said, Leslie was his favorite. He got mopey and melancholy, and couldn't or wouldn't work. And one day, when Leslie was fourteen years of age, he hanged himself. And in the parlor, too, mind you, Anne, right in the middle of the parlor, from the lamp-hook in the ceiling. Wasn't that like a man? It was the anniversary of his wedding day, too. Nice, tasty time to pick for it, wasn't it? And, of course, that poor Leslie had to be the one to find him. She went into the parlor that morning singing, with some fresh flowers for the vases, and there she saw her father hanging from the ceiling, his face as black as coal. 
It was something awful, believe me." "'Oh, how horrible!' said Anne, shuddering. "'The poor, poor child!' Leslie didn't cry at her father's funeral any more than she had cried at Kenneth's. Rose whooped and howled for two, however, and Leslie had all she could do trying to calm and comfort her mother. I was disgusted with Rose, and so was everyone else. But Leslie never got out of patience. She loved her mother. Leslie is clannish. Her own could never do wrong in her eyes. Well, they buried Frank West beside Kenneth, and Rose put up a great monument to him. It was bigger than his character, believe me. Anyhow, it was bigger than Rose could afford, for the farm was mortgaged for more than its value. But not long after, Leslie's old grandmother West died, and she left Leslie a little money—enough to give her a year at Queen's Academy. Leslie had made up her mind to pass for a teacher if she could, and then earn enough to put herself through Redmond College. That had been her father's pet scheme. He wanted her to have what he had lost. Leslie was full of ambition, and her head was chock-full of brains. She went to Queen's, and she took two years' work in one year, and got her first, and when she came home she got the Glen School. She was so happy and hopeful and full of life and eagerness. When I think of what she was then and what she is now, I say, drat the men!" Miss Cornelia snipped her thread off as viciously as if, Nero-like, she was severing the neck of mankind by the stroke. Dick Moore came into her life that summer. His father, Abner Moore, kept the store at the Glen, but Dick had a sea-going streak in him from his mother. He used to sail in summer and clerk in his father's store in winter. He was a big, handsome fellow with a little, ugly soul. He was always wanting something till he got it, and then he stopped wanting it, just like a man. Oh, he didn't growl at the weather when it was fine, and he was mostly real pleasant and agreeable when everything went right, but he drank a good deal, and there were some nasty stories told of him and a girl down at the fishing village. He wasn't fit for Leslie to wipe her feet on, that's the long and short of it. And he was a Methodist. But he was clean mad about her, because of her good looks in the first place, and because she wouldn't have anything to say to him in the second. He vowed he'd have her, and he got her. How did he bring it about? Oh, it was an iniquitous thing. I'll never forgive Rose West. You see, Anne dearie, Abner Moore held the mortgage on the West farm, and the interest was overdue some years, and Dick just went and told Mrs. West that if Leslie wouldn't marry him he'd get his father to foreclose the mortgage. Rose carried on dreadful, fainted and wept and pleaded with Leslie not to let her be turned out of her home. She said it would break her heart to leave the home she'd come to as a bride. I wouldn't have blamed her for feeling bad over it, but you wouldn't have thought she'd be so selfish as to sacrifice her own flesh and blood because of it, would you? Well, she was. And Leslie gave in. She loved her mother so much she would have done anything to save her pain. She married Dick Moore. None of us knew why at the time. It wasn't till long afterward that I found out how her mother had worried her into it. I was sure there was something wrong, though, because I knew she had snubbed him time and again, and it wasn't like Leslie to turn face about like that. Besides, I knew that Dick Moore wasn't the kind of man Leslie could ever fancy, in spite of his good looks and dashing ways. Of course there was no wedding, but Rose asked me to go and see them married. I went, but I was sorry I did. I'd seen Leslie's face at her brother's funeral and at her father's funeral, and now it seemed to me I was seeing it at her own funeral. But Rose was smiling as a basket of chips, believe me. Leslie and Dick settled down on the West Place. Rose couldn't bear to part with her dear daughter, and lived there for the winter. In the spring Rose took pneumonia and died, a year too late. Leslie was heartbroken enough over it. Isn't it terrible the way some unworthy folks are loved, while others that deserve it far more, you'd think, never get much affection? As for Dick, he'd had enough of quiet married life, just like a man. He was for up and off. 
He went over to Nova Scotia to visit his relations—his father had come from Nova Scotia—and he wrote back to Leslie that his cousin George Moore was going on a voyage to Havana, and he was going, too. The name of the vessel was the Four Sisters, and they were to be gone about nine weeks. It must have been a relief to Leslie, but she never said anything. From the day of her marriage she was just what she is now—cold and proud, and keeping every one but me at a distance. I won't be kept at a distance, believe me. I've just stuck to Leslie as close as I knew how, in spite of everything." "'She told me you were the best friend she had,' said Anne. "'Did she?' exclaimed Miss Cornelia delightedly. "'Well, I'm real thankful to hear it. Sometimes I've wondered if she really did want me around at all. She never let me think so. You must have thought her out more than you think, or she wouldn't have said that much itself to you. Oh, that poor heartbroken girl! I never see Dick Moore, but I want to run a knife clean through him." Miss Cornelia wiped her eyes again, and, having relieved her feelings by her bloodthirsty wish, took up her tale. Well, Leslie was left over there alone. Dick had put in the crop before he went, and old Abner looked after it. The summer went by, and the four sisters didn't come back. The Nova Scotia Moors investigated, and found she had got to Havana and discharged her cargo, and took on another and left for home, and that was all they ever found out about her. By degrees people began to talk of Dick Moore as one that was dead. Almost everyone believed that he was, though no one felt certain, for men have turned up here at the harbour after they'd been gone for years. Leslie never thought he was dead, and she was right—a thousand pities, too. The next summer Captain Jim was in Havana—that was before he gave up the sea, of course. He thought he'd poke around a bit—Captain Jim always was meddlesome, just like a man—and he went to inquiring round among the sailors' boarding-houses and places like that, to see if he could find out anything about the crew of the Four Sisters. He'd better have let sleeping dogs lie, in my opinion. Well, he went to one out-of-the-way place, and there he found a man he knew at first sight was Dick Moore, though he had a big beard. Captain Jim got it shaved off, and there was no doubt—Dick Moore it was—his body, at least. His mind wasn't there. As for his soul, in my opinion, he never had one. What had happened to him? Nobody knows the rights of it. All the folks who kept the boarding-house could tell was that about a year before they had found him lying on their doorstep one morning, in an awful condition, his head battered to a jelly almost. They supposed he'd got hurt in some drunken row, and likely that's the truth of it. They took him in, never thinking he could live. But he did, and he was just like a child when he got well. He hadn't memory or intellect or reason. They tried to find out who he was, but they never could. He couldn't even tell them his name. He could only say a few simple words. He had a letter on him beginning, Dear Dick, and signed Leslie, but there was no address on it, and the envelope was gone. They let him stay on, he learned to do a few odd jobs about the place, and there Captain Jim found him. He brought him home. I've always said it was a bad day's work, though I suppose there was nothing else he could do. He thought maybe when Dick got home and saw his old surroundings and familiar faces his memory would wake up, but it hadn't any effect. There he's been at the house up the brook ever since. He's just like a child, no more nor less, takes fractious spells occasionally, but mostly he's just vacant and good-humoured and harmless. He's apt to run away if he isn't watched. That's the burden Leslie has had to carry for eleven years, and all alone. Old Abner Moore died soon after Dick was brought home, and it was found he was almost bankrupt. When things were settled up there was nothing for Leslie and Dick but the old West Farm. Leslie rented it to John Ward, and the rent is all she has to live on. Sometimes in summer she takes a boarder to help out. But most visitors prefer the other side of the harbour where the hotels and summer cottages are. Leslie's house is too far from the bathing shore. 
She's taken care of Dick, and she's never been away from him for eleven years. She's tied to that imbecile for life. And after all the dreams and hopes she once had. You can imagine what it has been like for her, Anne, dearie, with her beauty and spirit and pride and cleverness. It's just been a living death." "'Poor, poor girl,' said Anne again. Her own happiness seemed to reproach her. What right had she to be so happy when another human soul must be so miserable? "'Will you tell me just what Leslie said and how she acted the night you met her on the shore?' asked Miss Cornelia. She listened intently and nodded her satisfaction. "'You thought she was stiff and cold, Anne, dearie, but I can tell you she thawed out wonderful for her. She must have taken to you real strong. I'm so glad. You may be able to help her a good deal. I was thankful when I heard that a young couple was coming to this house, for I hoped it would mean some friends for Leslie, especially if you belong to the race that knows Joseph. You will be her friend, won't you, Anne, dearie?' "'Indeed I will, if she'll let me,' said Anne, with all her own sweet, impulsive earnestness. "'No.' "'You must be her friend, whether she'll let you or not,' said Miss Cornelia resolutely. "'Don't you mind if she's stiff by times. Don't notice it. Remember what her life has been—and is, and always must be, I suppose, for creatures like Dick Moore live forever, I understand. You should see how fat he's got since he came home. He used to be lean enough. Just make her be friends. You can do it. You're one of those who have the knack. Only you mustn't be sensitive, and don't mind if she doesn't seem to want you to go over there much. She knows that some women don't like to be where Dick is. They complain he gives them the creeps. Just get her to come over here as often as she can. She can't get away so very much. She can't leave Dick long, for the Lord knows what he'd do—burn the house down, most likely. At nights, after he's in bed and asleep, is about the only time she's free. He always goes to bed early and sleeps like the dead till next morning. That is how you came to meet her at the shore, likely. She wonders there considerable." "'I will do everything I can for her,' said Anne. Her interest in Leslie Moore, which had been vivid ever since she had seen her driving her geese down the hill, was intensified a thousandfold by Miss Cornelia's narration. The girl's beauty and sorrow and loneliness drew her with an irresistible fascination. She had never known anyone like her. Her friends had hitherto been wholesome, normal, merry girls like herself, with only the average trials of human care and bereavement to shadow their girlish dreams. Leslie Moore stood apart, a tragic, appealing figure of thwarted womanhood. Anne resolved that she would win entrance into the kingdom of that lonely soul, and find there the comradeship it could so richly give, were it not for the cruel fetters that held it in a prison not of its own making. "'And mind you this, Anne dearie,' said Miss Cornelia, who had not yet wholly relieved her mind. "'You mustn't think Leslie is an infidel because she hardly ever goes to church, or even that she's a Methodist. She can't take Dick to church, of course—not that he ever troubled church much in his best days. But you must remember that she's a real strong Presbyterian at heart, Anne dearie.'" End of chapter 11《Chapter Twelve of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. Leslie Comes Over. Leslie came over to the House of Dreams one frosty October night, when moonlit mists were hanging over the harbor and curling like silver ribbons along the seaward glens. She looked as if she repented coming when Gilbert answered her knock, but Anne flew past him, pounced on her, and drew her in. 
"'I'm so glad you picked tonight for a call,' she said gaily. "'I made up a lot of extra good fudge this afternoon, and we want someone to help us eat it, before the fire, while we tell stories. Perhaps Captain Jim will drop in, too. This is his night.' "'No. Captain Jim is over home,' said Leslie. "'He—he made me come here,' she added, half defiantly. "'I'll say a thank you to him for that when I see him,' said Anne, pulling easy chairs before the fire. "'Oh, I don't mean that I didn't want to come,' protested Leslie, flushing a little. I "'I've been thinking of coming, but it isn't always easy for me to get away.' "'Of course, it must be hard for you to leave Mr. Moore,' said Anne, in a matter-of-fact tone. She had decided that it would be best to mention Dick Moore occasionally as an accepted fact, and not give undue morbidness to the subject by avoiding it. She was right, for Leslie's air of constraint suddenly vanished. Evidently she had been wondering how much Anne knew of the conditions of her life, and was relieved that no explanations were needed. She allowed her cap and jacket to be taken, and sat down with a girlish snuggle in the big armchair by Magog. She was dressed prettily and carefully, with the customary touch of color in the scarlet geranium at her white throat. Her beautiful hair gleamed like molten gold in the warm firelight. Her sea-blue eyes were full of soft laughter and allurement. For the moment, under the influence of the little house of dreams, she was a girl again—a girl forgetful of the past and its bitterness. The atmosphere of the many loves that had sanctified the little house was all about her. The companionship of two healthy, happy young folks of her own generation encircled her. She felt and yielded to the magic of her surroundings. Miss Cornelia and Jim would scarcely have recognized her. Anne found it hard to believe that this was the cold, unresponsive woman she had met on the shore, this animated girl who talked and listened with the eagerness of a starved soul. And how hungrily Leslie's eyes looked at the bookcases between the windows. "'Our library isn't very extensive,' said Anne, "'but every book in it is a friend. We've picked our books up through the years, here and there, never buying one until we had first read it and knew that it belonged to the race of Joseph.' Leslie laughed, beautiful laughter, that seemed akin to all the mirth that had echoed through the little house in the vanished years. "'I have a few books of my father's—not many,' she said. "'I've read them until I know them almost by heart. I don't get many books. There's a circulating library at the Glen store, but I don't think the committee who pick the books for Mr. Parker know what books are of Joseph's race, or perhaps they don't care. It was so seldom I got one I really liked that I gave up getting any.' "'I hope you'll look on our bookshelves as your own,' said Anne. "'You are entirely and wholeheartedly welcome to the loan of any book on them.' "'You're setting a feast of fat things before me,' said Leslie joyously. Then, as the clock struck ten, she rose, half unwillingly. "'I must go. I didn't realize it was so late. Captain Jim is always saying it doesn't take long to stay an hour. But I've stayed too, and—oh, but I've enjoyed them,' she added frankly. "'Come often,' said Anne and Gilbert. They had risen and stood together in the firelight's glow. Leslie looked at them—youthful, hopeful, happy—typifying all she had missed and must forever miss. The light went out of her face and eyes. The girl vanished. It was the sorrowful, cheated woman who answered the invitation almost coldly and got herself away with a pitiful haste. Anne watched her until she was lost in the shadows of the chill and misty night. Then she turned slowly back to the glow of her own radiant hearthstone. "'Isn't she lovely, Gilbert? Her hair fascinates me. Miss Cornelia says it reaches to her feet. Ruby Gillis had beautiful hair. But Leslie's is alive. Every thread of it is living gold.' 
She is very beautiful, agreed Gilbert, so heartily that Anne almost wished he were a little less enthusiastic. Gilbert, would you like my hair better if it were like Leslie's? she asked wistfully. I wouldn't have your hair any color but just what it is for the world, said Gilbert, with one or two convincing accompaniments. You wouldn't be Anne if you had golden hair, or hair of any color but— Red, said Anne, with gloomy satisfaction. Yes, red, to give warmth to that milk-white skin and those shining gray-green eyes of yours. Golden hair wouldn't suit you at all, Queen Anne. My Queen Anne, queen of my heart and life and home. Then you may admire Leslie's all you like, said Anne magnanimously. End of chapter 12《Chapter Thirteen of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen A Ghostly Evening. One evening, a week later, Anne decided to run over the fields to the house up the brook for an informal call. It was an evening of gray fog that had crept in from the gulf, swathed the harbor, filled the glens and valleys, and clung heavily to the autumnal meadows. Through it, the sea sobbed and shuddered. Anne saw four winds in a new aspect and found it weird and mysterious and fascinating, but it also gave her a little feeling of loneliness. Gilbert was away, and would be away until the morrow, attending a medical powwow in Charlottetown. Anne longed for an hour of fellowship with some girlfriend. Captain Jim and Miss Cornelia were good fellows each in their own way, but youth yearned to youth. If only Diana or Phil or Pris or Stella could drop in for a chat, she said to herself, how delightful it would be. This is such a ghostly night. I'm sure all the ships that ever sailed out of Four Winds to their doom could be seen tonight sailing up the harbor with their drowned crews on their decks, if that shrouding fog could be suddenly drawn aside. I feel as if it concealed innumerable mysteries, as if I were surrounded by the wraiths of old generations of Four Winds people peering at me through that gray veil. If ever the dear dead ladies of this little house came back to revisit it, they would come on just such a night as this. If I sit here any longer I'll see one of them there opposite me in Gilbert's chair. This place isn't exactly canny tonight. Even Gog and Magog have an air of pricking up their ears to hear the footsteps of unseen guests. I'll run over to see Leslie before I frighten myself with my own fancies, as I did long ago in the matter of the haunted wood. I'll leave my house of dreams to welcome back its old inhabitants. My fire will give them goodwill and greeting. They will be gone before I come back, and my house will be mine once more. Tonight I am sure it is keeping a tryst with the past." Laughing a little over her fancy, yet with something of a creepy sensation in the region of her spine, Anne kissed her hand to Gog and Magog and slipped out into the fog, with some of the new magazines under her arm for Leslie. "'Leslie's wild for books and magazines,' Miss Cornelia had told her, and she hardly ever sees one. She can't afford to buy them or subscribe for them. She's really pitifully poor, Anne. I don't see how she makes out to live at all on the little rent the farm brings in. She never even hints a complaint on the score of poverty, but I know what it must be. She's been handicapped by it all her life. She didn't mind it when she was free and ambitious, but it must gall now, believe me. I'm glad she seemed so bright and merry the evening she spent with you. Captain Jim told me he had fairly to put her cap and coat on and push her out of the door don't be too long in going to see her, either. If you are, she'll think it's because you don't like the sight of Dick, and she'll crawl into her shell again. Dick's a great big harmless baby, but that silly grin and chuckle of his do get on some people's nerves. 
Thank goodness I've no nerves myself. I like Dick Moore better now than I ever did when he was in his right senses, though the Lord knows that isn't saying much. I was down there one day in house-cleaning time helping Leslie a bit, and I was frying doughnuts. Dick was hanging round to get one, as usual, and all at once he picked up a scalding hot one I just fished out and dropped it on the back of my neck when I was bending over. Then he laughed and laughed. Believe me, Anne, it took all the grace of God in my heart to keep me from just whisking up that stewpan of boiling fat and pouring it over his head." Anne laughed over Miss Cornelia's wrath as she sped through the darkness. But laughter recorded ill with that night. She was sober enough when she reached the house among the willows. Everything was very silent. The front part of the house seemed dark and deserted, so Anne slipped round to the side door, which opened from the veranda into a little sitting-room. There she halted noiselessly. The door was open. Beyond, in the dimly lighted room, sat Leslie Moore, with her arms flung out on the table and her head bent upon them. She was weeping horribly, with low, fierce, choking sobs, as if some agony in her soul were trying to tear itself out. An old black dog was sitting by her, his nose resting on her lap, his big, doggish eyes full of mute, imploring sympathy and devotion. Anne drew back in dismay. She felt that she could not intermeddle with this bitterness. Her heart ached with a sympathy she might not utter. To go in now would be to shut the door forever on any possible help or friendship. Some instinct warned Anne that the proud, bitter girl would never forgive the one who thus surprised her in her abandonment of despair. Anne slipped noiselessly from the veranda and found her way across the yard. Beyond she heard voices in the gloom, and saw the dim glow of a light. At the gate she met two men—Captain Jim with a lantern, and another who she knew must be Dick Moore—a big man, badly gone to fat, with a broad, round, red face and vacant eyes. Even in the dull light Anne got the impression that there was something unusual about his eyes. "'Is this you, Mistress Blythe?' said Captain Jim. "'Now, now, you hadn't ought to be roaming out alone on a night like this. You could get lost in this fog easier than not. Just you wait till I see Dick safe inside the door, and I'll come back and light you over the fields. I ain't going to have Dr. Blythe coming home and finding that you walked clean over Cape La Force in the fog. A woman did that once forty years ago. "'So you've been over to see Leslie,' he said when he rejoined her. "'I didn't go in,' said Anne, and told what she had seen. Captain Jim sighed. "'Poor, poor little girl.' She don't cry often, Mistress Blythe. She's too brave for that. She must feel terrible when she does cry. A night like this is hard on poor women who have sorrows. There's something about it that kind of brings up all we've suffered or feared. It's full of ghosts," said Anne with a shiver. That was why I came over. I wanted to clasp a human hand and hear a human voice. There seemed to be so many inhuman presences about tonight. Even my own dear house was full of them. They fairly elbowed me out, so I fled over here for companionship of my kind. You were right not to go in, though, Mistress Blythe. Leslie wouldn't have liked it. She wouldn't have liked me going in with Dick, as I'd have done if I hadn't met you. I had Dick down with me all day. I keep him with me as much as I can to help Leslie a bit." "'Isn't there something odd about his eyes?' asked Anne. "'You notice that?' "'Yes. One is blue, and t'other is hazel. His father had the same. It's a more peculiarity. That was what told me he was Dick Moore when I saw him first down in Cuby. If it hadn't a been for his eyes, I mightn't a known him, with his beard and fat. You know, I reckon, that it was me found him and brought him home. 
Miss Cornelia always says I shouldn't have done it, but I can't agree with her. It was the right thing to do, and so twas the only thing. There ain't no question in my mind about that. But my old heart aches for Leslie. She's only twenty-eight, and she's eaten more bread with sorrow than most women do in eighty years." They walked on in silence for a little while. Presently Anne said, "'Do you know, Captain Jim, I never like walking with a lantern. I always have the strangest feeling that just outside the circle of light, just over its edge in the darkness, I'm surrounded by a ring of furtive, sinister things, watching me from the shadows with hostile eyes. I've had that feeling from childhood. What is the reason? I never feel like that when I'm really in the darkness, when it is close all around me. I'm not the least frightened." "'I've something of that feeling myself,' admitted Captain Jim. "'I reckon when the darkness is close to us it is a friend. But when we sort of push it away from us, divorce ourselves from it, so to speak, with lantern light, it becomes an enemy. But the fog is lifting. There's a smart west wind rising, if you notice. The stars will be out when you get home." They were out, and when Anne re-entered her house of dreams the red embers were still glowing on the hearth, and all the haunting presences were gone. End of chapter 13「Chapter fourteen of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen. November Days. The splendor of color which had glowed for weeks along the shores of Four Winds Harbor had faded out into the soft gray blue of late autumnal hills. There came many days when fields and shores were dim with misty rain, or shivering before the breath of a melancholy sea-wind nights, too, of storm and tempest, when Anne sometimes wakened to pray that no ship might be beating up the grim north shore, for if it were so, not even the great faithful light, whirling through the darkness unafraid, could avail to guide it into safe haven. "'In November I sometimes feel as if spring could never come again,' she sighed, grieving over the hopeless unsightliness of her frosted and bedraggled flower-pots. The gay little garden of the schoolmaster's bride was rather a forlorn place now, and the Lombardies and birches were under bare poles, as Captain Jim said. But the fir-wood behind the little house was forever green and staunch, and even in November and December there came gracious days of sunshine and purple hazes, when the harbor danced and sparkled as blithely as in midsummer, and the gulf was so softly blue and tender that the storm and the wild wind seemed only things of a long-past dream. Anne and Gilbert spent many an autumn evening at the lighthouse. It was always a cheery place. Even when the east wind sang in minor and the sea was dead and gray, hints of sunshine seemed to be lurking all about it. Perhaps this was because the first mate always paraded it in panoply of gold. He was so large and effulgent that one hardly missed the sun, and his resounding purrs formed a pleasant accompaniment to the laughter and conversation which went on round Captain Jim's fireplace. Captain Jim and Gilbert had many long discussions and high converse on matters beyond the ken of cat or king. "'I like to ponder on all kinds of problems, though I can't solve them,' said Captain Jim. "'My father held that we should never talk of things we couldn't understand. But if we didn't, doctor, the subjects for conversation would be mighty few. I reckon the gods laugh many a time to hear us. But what matters so long as we remember that we're only men, and don't take to fancying that we're gods ourselves, really, knowing good and evil? 
I reckon our powwows won't do us or anyone much harm. So let's have another whack at the whence, why, and whither this evening, doctor." While they whacked, Anne listened or dreamed. Sometimes Leslie went to the lighthouse with them, and she and Anne wandered along the shore in the eerie twilight, or sat on the rocks below the lighthouse until the darkness drove them back to the cheer of the driftwood fire. Then Captain Jim would brew them tea, and tell them tales of land and sea, and whatsoever might betide the great forgotten world outside. Leslie always seemed to enjoy those lighthouse carousals very much, and bloomed out for the time being into ready wit and beautiful laughter, or glowing-eyed silence. There was a certain tang and savor in the conversation when Leslie was present, which they missed when she was absent. Even when she did not talk, she seemed to inspire others to brilliancy. Captain Jim told his stories better. Gilbert was quicker in argument and repartee. Anne felt little gushes and trickles of fancy and imagination bubbling to her lips under the influence of Leslie's personality. That girl was born to be a leader in social and intellectual circles, far away from Four Winds, she said to Gilbert as they walked home one night. She's just wasted here, wasted. Weren't you listening to Captain Jim and yours truly the other night when we discussed that subject generally? We came to the comforting conclusion that the Creator probably knew how to run his universe quite as well as we do, and that, after all, there are no such things as wasted lives, saving and accepting when an individual willfully squanders and wastes his own life, which Leslie Moore certainly hasn't done. And some people might think that a Redmond B.A., whom editors were beginning to honor, was wasted as the wife of a struggling country doctor in the rural community of Four Winds. Gilbert! If you had married Roy Gardner now, continued Gilbert mercilessly, you could have been a leader in social and intellectual circles far away from Four Winds. Gilbert Blythe! You know you were in love with him at one time, Anne. Gilbert, that's mean. Pies and mean, just like all the men, as Miss Cornelia says. I never was in love with him. I only imagined I was. You know that. You know I'd rather be your wife in our house of dreams and fulfillment than a queen in a palace. Gilbert's answer was not in words, but I am afraid that both of them forgot poor Leslie, speeding her lonely way across the fields to a house that was neither a palace nor the fulfillment of a dream. The moon was rising over the sad, dark sea behind them and transfiguring it. Her light had not yet reached the harbor, the further side of which was shadowy and suggestive, with dim coves and rich glooms and jeweling lights. "'How the home-light shines out to-night through the dark,' said Anne. "'That string of them over the harbour looks like a necklace. "'And what a coruscation there is up at the glen. "'Oh, look, Gilbert, there is ours. "'I'm so glad we left it burning. "'I hate to come home to a dark house. "'Our home-light, Gilbert. "'Isn't it lovely to see?' "'Just like one of Earth's many millions of homes, Anne-girl. "'But ours. "'Ours. "'Our beacon in a naughty world.' When a fellow has a home and a dear little red-haired wife in it, what more need he ask of life? Well, he might ask one thing more, whispered Anne happily. Oh, Gilbert, it seems as if I just couldn't wait for the spring. End of chapter 14「Chapter 15 of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. Christmas at Four Winds 
At first Anne and Gilbert talked of going home to Avonlea for Christmas, but eventually they decided to stay in Four Winds. "'I want to spend the first Christmas of our life together in our own home,' decreed Anne. So it fell out that Marilla and Mrs. Rachel Lynde and the twins came to Four Winds for Christmas. Marilla had the face of a woman who had circumnavigated the globe. She had never been sixty miles away from home before, and she had never eaten a Christmas dinner anywhere save at Green Gables. Mrs. Rachel had made and brought with her an enormous plum pudding. Nothing could have convinced Mrs. Rachel that a college graduate of the younger generation could make a Christmas plum pudding properly, but she bestowed approval on Anne's house. "'Anne's a good housekeeper,' she said to Marilla in the spare room the night of their arrival. "'I've looked into her bread-box and her scrap-pail. I always judge a housekeeper by those, that's what. There's nothing in the pail that shouldn't have been thrown away, and no stale pieces in the bread-box.' Of course, she was trained up with you, but then she went to college afterwards. I notice she's got my tobacco-stripe quilt on the bed here, and that big round braided mat of yours before her living-room fire. It makes me feel right at home." Anne's first Christmas in her own house was as delightful as she could have wished. The day was fine and bright. The first skin of snow had fallen on Christmas Eve and made the world beautiful. The harbor was still open and glittering. Captain Jim and Miss Cornelia came to dinner. Leslie and Dick had been invited, but Leslie made excuse. They always went to her uncle Isaac West's for Christmas, she said. She'd rather have it so, Miss Cornelia told Anne. She can't bear taking Dick where there are strangers. Christmas is always a hard time for Leslie. She and her father used to make a lot of it. Miss Cornelia and Mrs. Rachel Lynde did not take a very violent fancy to each other. Two sons hold not their courses in one sphere. But they did not clash at all, for Mrs. Rachel was in the kitchen helping Anne and Marilla with the dinner, and it fell to Gilbert to entertain Captain Jim and Miss Cornelia—or, rather, to be entertained by them, for a dialogue between those two old friends and antagonists was assuredly never dull. "'It's many a year since there was a Christmas dinner here, Mistress Blythe,' said Captain Jim. Miss Russell always went to her friends in town for Christmas but I was here to the first Christmas dinner that was ever eaten in this house, and the schoolmaster's bride cooked it. That was sixty years ago to-day, Mistress Blythe, and a day very like this—just enough snow to make the hills white, and the harbour as blue as June. I was only a lad, and I'd never been invited out to dinner before, and I was too shy to eat enough. I've got all over that." "'Most men do,' said Miss Cornelia, sewing furiously. Miss Cornelia was not going to sit with idle hands, even on Christmas. Babies come without any consideration for holidays, and there was one expected in a poverty-stricken household at Glen St. Mary. Miss Cornelia had sent that household a substantial dinner for its little swarm, and so meant to eat her own with a comfortable conscience. "'Well, you know the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, Cornelia,' explained Captain Jim. "'I believe you, when he has a heart.' retorted Miss Cornelia. I suppose that's why so many women kill themselves cooking, just as poor Amelia Baxter did. She died last Christmas morning, and she said it was the first Christmas since she was married that she didn't have to cook a big twenty-plate dinner. It must have been a real pleasant change for her. Well, she's been dead a year, so you'll soon hear of Horace Baxter taking notice." "'I heard he was taking notice already,' said Captain Jim, winking at Gilbert. "'Wasn't he up to your place one Sunday lately, with his funeral blacks on, and a boiled collar?' "'No, he wasn't. And he needn't come, neither. I could have had him long ago when he was fresh. I don't want any second-hand goods, believe me. 
As for Horace Baxter, he was in financial difficulties a year ago last summer, and he prayed to the Lord for help, and when his wife died, and he got her life insurance, he said he believed it was the answer to his prayer. Wasn't that like a man?" "'Have you really proof that he said that, Cornelia?' "'I have the Methodist minister's word for it, if you call that proof. Robert Baxter told me the same thing, too, but I admit that isn't evidence. Robert Baxter isn't often known to tell the truth. Come, come, Cornelia. I think he generally tells the truth, but he changes his opinion so often it sometimes sounds as if he didn't. It sounds like it mighty often, believe me, but trust one man to excuse another. I have no use for Robert Baxter. He turned Methodist just because the Presbyterian choir happened to be singing Behold the Bridegroom Cometh for a collection piece when him and Margaret walked up the aisle the Sunday after they were married. Served him right for being late. He always insisted the choir did it on purpose to insult him, as if he was of that much importance. But that family always thought they were much bigger potatoes than they really were. His brother Eliphalet imagined the devil was always at his elbow. But I never believed the devil wasted that much time on him." "'I don't know,' said Captain Jim thoughtfully. Eliphalet Baxter lived too much alone. Hadn't even a cat or dog to keep him human. When a man is alone, he's mighty apt to be with the devil, if he ain't with God. He has to choose which company he'll keep, I reckon. If the devil always was at Life Baxter's elbow, it must have been because Life liked to have him there." "'Man-like,' said Miss Cornelia, and subsided into silence over a complicated arrangement of tucks, until Captain Jim deliberately stirred her up again by remarking in a casual way, "'I was up to the Methodist church last Sunday morning.' "'You'd better have been home reading your Bible,' was Miss Cornelia's retort. "'Come now, Cornelia. I can't see any harm in going to the Methodist church when there's no preaching in your own. I've been a Presbyterian for seventy-six years, and it isn't likely my theology will hoist anchor at this late day.' "'It's setting a bad example,' said Miss Cornelia grimly. "'Besides,' continued wicked Captain Jim, "'I wanted to hear some good singing. The Methodists have a good choir.' and you can't deny, Cornelia, that the singing in our church is awful since the split in the choir. What if the singing isn't good? They're doing their best, and God sees no difference between the voice of a crow and the voice of a nightingale." "'Come, come, Cornelia,' said Captain Jim mildly. "'I've a better opinion of the Almighty's ear for music than that.' "'What caused the trouble in our choir?' asked Gilbert, who was suffering from suppressed laughter. It dates back to the new church three years ago," answered Captain Jim. We had a fearful time over the building of that church, fell out over the question of a new site. The two sites wasn't more'n two hundred yards apart, but you'd have thought they was a thousand by the bitterness of that fight. We was split up into three factions. One wanted the east site, and one the south, and one held to the old. It was fought out in bed and at board, and in church and at market. All the old scandals of three generations were dragged out of their graves and aired. Three matches was broken up by it, and the meetings we had to try to settle the question. Cornelia, will you ever forget the one when old Luther Burns got up and made a speech? He stated his opinions forcibly. Call a spade a spade, Captain. You mean he got red mad and raked them all fore and aft. They deserved it, too, a pack of incapables. But what would you expect of a committee of men? That building committee held twenty-seven meetings, and at the end of the twenty-seventh weren't no nearer having a church than when they begun. Not so near, for a fact, for in one fit of hurrying things along they'd gone to work and tore the old church down. So there we were without a church, and no place but the hall to worship in." "'The Methodists offered us their church, Cornelia. 
"'The Glen St. Mary Church wouldn't have been built to this day,' went on Miss Cornelia, ignoring Captain Jim, "'if we women hadn't just started it and took charge. We said we meant to have a church, if the men meant to quarrel till doomsday, and we were tired of being a laughing-stock for the Methodists. We held one meeting, and elected a committee, and canvassed for subscriptions. We got them, too.' When any of the men tried to sass us, we told them they'd tried for two years to build a church, and it was our turn now. We shut them up close, believe me, and in six months we had our church. Of course, when the men saw we were determined, they stopped fighting and went to work, man-like, as soon as they saw they had to or quit bossing. Oh, women can't preach or be elders, but they can build churches and scare up the money for them." "'The Methodists allow women to preach,' said Captain Jim. Miss Cornelia glared at him. I never said the Methodists hadn't common sense, Captain. What I say is, I doubt if they have much religion." "'I suppose you're in favour of votes for women, Miss Cornelia,' said Gilbert. "'I'm not hankering after the vote, believe me,' said Miss Cornelia scornfully. "'I know what it is to clean up after the men. But some of these days, when the men realise they've got the world into a mess they can't get it out of, they'll be glad to give us the vote, and shoulder their troubles over on us. That's their scheme.' Oh, it's well that women are patient, believe me." "'What about Job?' suggested Captain Jim. "'Job! It was such a rare thing to find a patient man that when one was really discovered they were determined he shouldn't be forgotten,' retorted Miss Cornelia triumphantly. "'Anyhow, the virtue doesn't go with the name. There never was such an impatient man born as old Job Taylor over harbour.' "'Well, you know, he had a good deal to try him, Cornelia. Even you can't defend his wife.' I always remember what old William McAllister said of her at her funeral. There's nae doot she was a Christian woman, but she had the dale's own temper." "'I suppose she was trying,' admitted Miss Cornelia reluctantly. But that didn't justify what Job said when she died. He rode home from the graveyard the day of the funeral with my father. He never said a word till they got near home. Then he heaved a big sigh and said, "'You may not believe it, Stephen, but this is the happiest day of my life.' Wasn't that like a man?" "'I suppose poor old Mrs. Job did make life kinder uneasy for him,' reflected Captain Jim. "'Well, there's such a thing as decency, isn't there? Even if a man is rejoicing in his heart over his wife being dead, he needn't proclaim it to the four winds of heaven. And happy day or not, Job Taylor wasn't long in marrying again, you might notice. His second wife could manage him. She made him walk Spanish, believe me. The first thing she did was to make him hustle round and put up a tombstone to the first Mrs. Job, and she had a place left on it for her own name. She said there'd be nobody to make Job put up a monument to her. "'Speaking of Taylors, how is Mrs. Lewis Taylor up at the Glen, doctor?' asked Captain Jim. "'She's getting better slowly, but she has to work too hard,' replied Gilbert. "'Her husband works too hard, raising prize pigs,' said Miss Cornelia. "'He's noted for his beautiful pigs. He's a heap prouder of his pigs than of his children. But then, to be sure, his pigs are the best pigs possible, while his children don't amount to much. He picked a poor mother for them, and starved her while she was bearing and rearing them. His pigs got the cream, and his children got the skim milk. "'There are times, Cornelia, when I have to agree with you, though it hurts me,' said Captain Jim. That's just exactly the truth about Lewis Taylor. When I see those poor miserable children of his, robbed of all children ought to have, it pisons my own bite and sup for days afterwards." Gilbert went out to the kitchen in response to Anne's beckoning. Anne shut the door and gave him a connubial lecture. 
Gilbert, you and Captain Jim must stop baiting Miss Cornelia. Oh, I've been listening to you, and I just won't allow it. Anne, Miss Cornelia's enjoying herself hugely. You know she is. Well, never mind. You two needn't egg her on like that. Dinner is ready now, and, Gilbert, don't let Mrs. Rachel carve the geese. I know she means to offer to do it, because she doesn't think you can do it properly. Show her you can. I ought to be able to. I've been studying A-B-C-D diagrams of carving for the past month," said Gilbert. Only don't talk to me while I'm doing it, Anne, for if you drive the letters out of my head I'll be in a worse predicament than you were in old geometry days when the teacher changed them." Gilbert carved the geese beautifully. Even Mrs. Rachel had to admit that. And everybody ate of them and enjoyed them. Anne's first Christmas dinner was a great success, and she beamed with housewifely pride. Merry was the feast and long, and when it was over they gathered around the cheer of the red hearth-flame, and Captain Jim told them stories, until the red sun swung low over Four Winds Harbor, and the long blue shadows of the Lombardies fell across the snow in the lane. "'I must be getting back to the light,' he said finally. "'I'll just have time to walk home before sundown. Thank you for a beautiful Christmas, Mistress Blythe. Bring Master Davy down to the light some night before he goes home.' I want to see those stone gods," said Davy with a relish. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 New Year's Eve at the Light the Green Gables folk went home after Christmas, Marilla under solemn covenant to return for a month in the spring. More snow came before New Year's, and the harbor froze over, but the gulf was still free beyond the white imprisoned fields. The last day of the old year was one of those bright, cold, dazzling winter days which bombard us with their brilliancy and command our admiration, but never our love. The sky was sharp and blue, the snow diamonds sparkled insistently, the stark trees were bare and shameless with a kind of brazen beauty. The hills shot assaulting lances of crystal. Even the shadows were sharp and stiff and clear-cut, as no proper shadows should be. Everything that was handsome seemed ten times handsomer and less attractive in the glaring splendor, and everything that was ugly seemed ten times uglier, and everything was either handsome or ugly. There was no soft blending or kind obscurity or elusive mistiness in that searching glitter. The only things that held their own individuality were the firs, for the fir is the tree of mystery and shadow, and yields never to the encroachments of crude radiance. But finally the day began to realize that she was growing old. Then a certain pensiveness fell over her beauty, which dimmed yet intensified it. Sharp angles, glittering points, melted away into curves and enticing gleams. The white harbor put on soft grays and pinks, the faraway hills turned amethyst. "'The old year is going away beautifully,' said Anne. She and Leslie and Gilbert were on their way to the Four Winds Point, having plotted with Captain Jim to watch the new year in at the light. The sun had set, and in the southwestern sky hung Venus, glorious and golden, having drawn as near to her earth-sister as is possible for her. For the first time Anne and Gilbert saw the shadow cast by that brilliant star of evening, that faint, mysterious shadow, never seen save when there is white snow to reveal it, and then only with averted vision, vanishing when you gaze at it directly. 
"'It's like the spirit of a shadow, isn't it?' whispered Anne. "'You can see it so plainly haunting your side when you look ahead, but when you turn and look at it, it's gone.' "'I have heard that you can see the shadow of Venus only once in a lifetime, and that within a year of seeing it your life's most wonderful gift will come to you,' said Leslie. But she spoke rather hardly. Perhaps she thought that even the shadow of Venus could bring her no gift of life. Anne smiled in the soft twilight. She felt quite sure what the mystic shadow promised her. They found Marshall Elliott at the lighthouse. At first Anne felt inclined to resent the intrusion of this long-haired, long-bearded eccentric into the familiar little circle. But Marshall Elliott soon proved his legitimate claim to membership in the household of Joseph. He was a witty, intelligent, well-read man, rivaling Captain Jim himself in the knack of telling a good story. They were all glad when he agreed to watch the old year out with them. Captain Jim's small nephew, Joe, had come down to spend New Year's with his great-uncle, and had fallen asleep on the sofa with the first mate curled up in a huge golden ball at his feet. "'Ain't he a dear little man?' said Captain Jim gloatingly. "'I do love to watch a little child asleep, Mistress Blythe. It's the most beautiful sight in the world, I reckon. Joe does love to get down here for a night, because I have him sleep with me. At home he has to sleep with the other two boys, and he doesn't like it. "'Why can't I sleep with father, Uncle Jim?' says he. "'Everybody in the Bible slept with their fathers. As for the questions,' he asks, the minister himself couldn't answer them. They fair swamp me. "'Uncle Jim, if I wasn't me, who'd I be?' And, Uncle Jim, what would happen if God died? He fired them two off at me tonight afore he went to sleep. As for his imagination, it sails away from everything. He makes up the most remarkable yarns, and then his mother shuts him up in the closet for telling stories. And he sits down and makes up another one, and has it ready to relate to her when she lets him out. He had one for me when he come down tonight. Uncle Jim, says he, solemn as a tombstone, I had a venture in the glen today. "'Yes, what was it?' says I, expecting something quite startling, but nowise prepared for what I really got. "'I met a wolf in the street,' says he, "'enormous wolf with a big red mouth and awful long teeth, Uncle Jim.' "'I didn't know there was any wolves up at the glen,' says I. "'Oh, he comed there from far, far away,' says Joe, "'and I thought he was going to eat me up, Uncle Jim.' "'Were you scared?' says I. "'No, cause I had a big gun,' says Joe, "'and I shot the wolf dead, Uncle Jim, solid dead, "'and then he went up to heaven and bit God,' says he. "'Well, I was fair staggered, Mistress Blythe.'" The hours bloomed into mirth around the driftwood fire. Captain Jim told tales, and Marshall Elliott sang old Scotch ballads in a fine tenor voice. Finally Captain Jim took down his old brown fiddle from the wall and began to play. He had a tolerable knack of fiddling, which all appreciated save the first mate, who sprang from the sofa as if he had been shot, emitted a shriek of protest, and fled wildly up the stairs. "'Can't cultivate an ear for music in that cat nohow,' said Captain Jim. "'He won't stay long enough to learn to like it. When we got the organ up at the Glen Church, old Elder Richards bounced up from his seat the minute the organist began to play, and scuttled down the aisle and out of the church at the rate of no man's business.' It reminded me so strong of the first mate tearing loose as soon as I begin to fiddle that I come near to laughing out loud in church than I ever did before or since. There was something so infectious in the rollicking tunes that Captain Jim played that very soon Marshall Elliott's feet began to twitch. 
He had been a noted dancer in his youth. Presently he started up and held out his hands to Leslie. Instantly she responded. Round and round the firelit room they circled with a rhythmic grace that was wonderful. Leslie danced like one inspired. The wild, sweet abandon of the music seemed to have entered into and possessed her. Anne watched her in fascinated admiration. She had never seen her like this. All the innate richness and color and charm of her nature seemed to have broken loose and overflowed in crimson cheek and glowing eye and grace of motion. Even the aspect of Marshall Elliott, with his long beard and hair, could not spoil the picture. On the contrary, it seemed to enhance it. Marshall Elliott looked like a Viking of elder days, dancing with one of the blue-eyed, golden-haired daughters of the Northland. "'The prettiest dancing I ever saw, and I've seen some in my time,' declared Captain Jim, when at last the bow fell from his tired hand. Leslie dropped into her chair, laughing, breathless. "'I love dancing,' she said apart to Anne. "'I haven't danced since I was sixteen, but I love it.' The music seems to run through my veins like quicksilver, and I forget everything, everything except the delight of keeping time to it. There isn't any floor beneath me, or walls about me, or roof over me. I'm floating amid the stars." Captain Jim hung his fiddle up in its place, beside a large frame enclosing several banknotes. "'Is there anybody else of your acquaintance who can afford to hang his walls with banknotes for pictures?' he asked. "'There's twenty ten-dollar notes there.' not worth the glass over them. They're old bank of P.E. Island notes. Had them by me when the bank failed, and I had them framed and hung up, partly as a reminder not to put your trust in banks, and partly to give me a real luxurious millionary feeling. Hello, matey, don't be scared. You can come back now. The music and revelry is over for tonight. The old year has just another hour to stay with us. I've seen seventy-six new years come in over that gulf yonder, Mr. Blythe. You'll see a hundred, said Marshall Elliott. Captain Jim shook his head. Nope, and I don't want to. At least, I think I don't. Death grows friendlier as we grow older. Not that one of us really wants to die, though, Marshall. Tennyson spoke truth when he said that. There's old Mrs. Wallace up at the Glen. She's had heaps of trouble all her life, poor soul, and she's lost almost every one she cared about. She's always saying that she'll be glad when her time comes, and she doesn't want to sojourn any longer in this vale of tears. But when she takes a sick spell, there's a fuss—doctors from town and a trained nurse and enough medicine to kill a dog. Life may be a vale of tears, all right, but there are some folks who enjoy weeping, I reckon." They spent the old year's last hour quietly around the fire. A few minutes before twelve, Captain Jim rose and opened the door. "'We must let the new year in.' he said. Outside was a fine blue night. A sparkling ribbon of moonlight garlanded the gulf. Inside the bar the harbour shone like a pavement of pearl. They stood before the door and waited—Captain Jim with his ripe, full experience, Marshall Elliott in his vigorous but empty middle life, Gilbert and Anne with their precious memories and exquisite hopes, Leslie with her record of starved years and her hopeless future. The clock on the little shelf above the fireplace struck twelve. "'Welcome, New Year,' said Captain Jim, bowing low as the last stroke died away. "'I wish you all the best year of your lives, mates. I reckon that whatever the New Year brings us will be the best the great Captain has for us. And somehow or other we'll all make port in a good harbour.'" End of chapter 16
Chapter Seventeen of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen, A Four Winds Winter. Winter set in vigorously after New Year's. Big white drifts heaped themselves about the little house, and palms of frost covered its windows. The harbor ice grew harder and thicker until the Four Winds people began their usual winter traveling over it. The safeways were bushed by a benevolent government, and night and day the gay tinkle of the sleigh bells sounded on it. On moonlit nights Anne heard them in her house of dreams like fairy chimes. The gulf froze over, and the four winds light flashed no more. During the months when navigation was closed, Captain Jim's office was a sinecure. The first mate and I will have nothing to do till spring except keep warm and amuse ourselves. The last lighthouse keeper used always to move up to the glen in winter, but I'd rather stay at the point. The first mate might get poisoned or chewed up by dogs at the glen. It's a mite lonely, to be sure, with neither the light nor the water for company, but if our friends come to see us often, we'll weather it through. Captain Jim had an ice boat, and many a wild, glorious spin Gilbert and Anne and Leslie had over the glib harbor ice with him. Anne and Leslie took long snowshoe tramps together, too, over the fields or across the harbor after storms, or through the woods beyond the glen. They were very good comrades in their rambles and their fireside communings. Each had something to give the other. Each felt life the richer for friendly exchange of thought and friendly silence. Each looked across the white fields between their homes with a pleasant consciousness of a friend beyond. But in spite of all this, Anne felt that there was always a barrier between Leslie and herself, a constraint that never wholly vanished. "'I don't know why I can't get closer to her,' Anne said one evening to Captain Jim. "'I like her so much. I admire her so much. I want to take her right into my heart and creep right into hers. But I can never cross the barrier.' "'You've been too happy all your life, Mistress Blythe,' said Captain Jim thoughtfully. I reckon that's why you and Leslie can't get real close together in your souls. The barrier between you is her experience of sorrow and trouble. She ain't responsible for it, and you ain't. But it's there, and neither of you can cross it." "'My childhood wasn't very happy before I came to Green Gables,' said Anne, gazing soberly out of the window at the still, sad, dead beauty of the leafless tree-shadows on the moonlit snow. "'Maybe not. But it was just the usual unhappiness of a child who hasn't anyone to look after it properly. There hasn't been any tragedy in your life, Mistress Blythe, and poor Leslie's has been almost all tragedy. She feels, I reckon, though maybe she hardly knows she feels it, that there's a vast deal in her life you can't enter nor understand, and so she has to keep you back from it, hold you off, so to speak, from hurting her. You know if we've got anything about us that hurts we shrink from anyone's touch on or near it. It holds good with our souls as well as our bodies, I reckon. Leslie's soul must be near raw. It's no wonder she hides it away." "'If that were really all I wouldn't mind, Captain Jim. I would understand. But there are times—not always, but now and again—when I almost have to believe that Leslie doesn't—doesn't doesn't like me. Sometimes I surprise a look in her eyes that seems to show resentment and dislike. It goes so quickly, but I've seen it, I'm sure of that. And it hurts me, Captain Jim. I'm not used to being disliked, and I've tried so hard to win Leslie's friendship. You have won it, Mistress Blythe. Don't you go cherishing any foolish notion that Leslie don't like you. 
If she didn't, she wouldn't have anything to do with you, much less chumming with you as she does. I know Leslie Moore too well not to be sure of that." The first time I ever saw her, driving her geese down the hill, on the day I came to Four Winds, she looked at me with the same expression," persisted Anne. I felt it, even in the midst of my admiration of her beauty. She looked at me resentfully. She did indeed, Captain Jim. The resentment must have been about something else, Mistress Blythe, and you just come in for a share of it because you happened past. Leslie does take sullen spells now and again, poor girl. I can't blame her, when I know what she has to put up with. I don't know why it's permitted. The doctor and I have talked a lot about the origin of evil, but we haven't quite found out all about it yet. There's a vast of ununderstandable things in life, ain't there, Mistress Blythe? Sometimes things seem to work out real proper-like, same as with you and the doctor. And then again they all seem to go catawampus. There's Leslie, so clever and beautiful you'd think she was meant for a queen, and instead she's cooped up over there, robbed of almost everything a woman'd value, with no prospect except waiting on Dick Moore all her life. Though, mind you, Mistress Blythe, I dare say she'd choose her life now, such as it is, rather than the life she lived with Dick before he went away. That's something a clumsy old sailor's tongue mustn't meddle with. But you've helped Leslie a lot. She's a different creature since you come to Four Winds. Us old friends see the difference in her as you can't. Miss Cornelia and me was talking it over the other day, and it's one of the mighty few pints that we see eye to eye on. So just you throw overboard any idea of her not liking you." Anne could hardly discard it completely, for there were undoubtedly times when she felt, with an instinct that was not to be combated by reason, that Leslie harbored a queer, indefinable resentment towards her. At times this secret consciousness marred the delight of their comradeship. At others it was almost forgotten. But Anne always felt the hidden thorn was there, and might prick her at any moment. She felt a cruel sting from it on the day when she told Leslie of what she hoped the spring would bring to the little house of dreams. Leslie looked at her with hard, bitter, unfriendly eyes. "'So you are to have that, too,' she said in a choked voice. And without another word she had turned and gone across the fields homeward. Anne was deeply hurt. For the moment she felt as if she could never like Leslie again. But when Leslie came over a few evenings later she was so pleasant, so friendly, so frank and witty and winsome, that Anne was charmed into forgiveness and forgetfulness. Only she never mentioned her darling hope to Leslie again, nor did Leslie ever refer to it. But one evening, when late winter was listening for the word of spring, she came over to the little house for a twilight chat, and when she went away she left a small white box on the table. Anne found it after she was gone, and opened it wonderingly. In it was a tiny white dress of exquisite workmanship, delicate embroidery, wonderful tucking, sheer loveliness. Every stitch in it was handwork, and the little frills of lace at neck and sleeves were of real Valenciennes. Lying on it was a card, with Leslie's love. "'What hours of work she must have put on it!' said Anne and the material must have cost more than she could really afford. It is very sweet of her." But Leslie was brusque and curt when Anne thanked her, and again the latter felt thrown back upon herself. 
Leslie's gift was not alone in the little house. Miss Cornelia had, for the time being, given up sewing for unwanted, unwelcome eighth babies, and fallen to sewing for a very much wanted first one, whose welcome would leave nothing to be desired. Philippa Blake and Diana Wright each sent a marvellous garment, and Mrs. Rachel Lynde sent several, in which good material and honest stitches took the place of embroidery and frills. Anne herself made many, desecrated by no touch of machinery, spending over them the happiest hours of the happy winter. Captain Jim was the most frequent guest of the little house, and none was more welcome. Every day Anne loved the simple-souled, true-hearted old sailor more and more. He was as refreshing as a sea-breeze, as interesting as some ancient chronicle. She was never tired of listening to his stories, and his quaint remarks and comments were a continual delight to her. Captain Jim was one of those rare and interesting people who never speak but they say something. The milk of human kindness and the wisdom of the serpent were mingled in his composition in delightful proportions. Nothing ever seemed to put Captain Jim out or depress him in any way. "'I've kind of contracted a habit of enjoying things,' he remarked once, when Anne had commented on his invariable cheerfulness. "'It's got so chronic that I believe I even enjoy the disagreeable things. It's great fun thinking they can't last. Old rheumatiz, says I, when it grips me hard, you've got to stop aching sometime. The worse you are, the sooner you'll stop, maybe. I'm bound to get the better of you in the long run, whether in the body or out of the body.' One night, by the fireside of the light, Anne saw Captain Jim's life-book. He needed no coaxing to show it, and proudly gave it to her to read. "'I read it to leave to little Joe,' he said. "'I don't like the idea of everything I've done and seen being clean forgot after I've slipped from my last voyage. Joe, he'll remember it, and tell the yarns to his children.' It was an old leather-bound book, filled with the record of his voyages and adventures. Anne thought what a treasure-trove it would be to a writer. Every sentence was a nugget. In itself, the book had no literary merit. Captain Jim's charm of storytelling failed him when he came to pen and ink. He could only jot roughly down the outline of his famous tales, and both spelling and grammar were sadly askew. But Anne felt that if anyone possessed of the gift could take that simple record of a brave, adventurous life, reading between the bald lines the tales of danger staunchly faced and duty manfully done, a wonderful story might be made from it. Rich comedy and thrilling tragedy were both lying hidden in Captain Jim's life-book, waiting for the touch of the master hand to waken the laughter and grief and horror of thousands. Anne said something of this to Gilbert as they walked home. "'Why don't you try your hand at it yourself, Anne?' Anne shook her head. "'No, I only wish I could, but it's not in the power of my gift. You know what my forte is, Gilbert—the fanciful, the fairy-like, the pretty. To write Captain Jim's life-book as it should be written, one should be a master of vigorous yet subtle style, a keen psychologist, a born humorist and a born tragedian.' A rare combination of gifts is needed. Paul might do it if he were older. Anyhow, I'm going to ask him to come down next summer and meet Captain Jim. "'Come to this shore,' wrote Anne to Paul. "'I'm afraid you cannot find here Nora or the Golden Lady or the Twin Sailors, but you will find one old sailor who can tell you wonderful stories.' Paul, however, wrote back, saying regretfully that he could not come that year. He was going abroad for two years' study. "'When I return I'll come to Four Winds, teacher,' he wrote. 
"'But meanwhile Captain Jim is growing old,' said Anne sorrowfully, "'and there is nobody to write his life-book.'" End of chapter 17《Spring Days》The ice in the harbor grew black and rotten in the March suns. In April there were blue waters and a windy, white-capped gulf again, and again the four winds light begemmed the twilights. "'I'm so glad to see it once more,' said Anne on the first evening of its reappearance. "'I've missed it so all winter.' The northwestern sky has seemed blank and lonely without it. The land was tender with brand-new, golden-green baby leaves. There was an emerald mist on the woods beyond the glen. The seaward valleys were full of fairy mists at dawn. Vibrant winds came and went with salt-foam in their breath. The sea laughed and flashed and preened and allured, like a beautiful, coquettish woman. The herrings schooled, and the fishing-village woke to life. The harbor was alive with white sails making for the channel. The ships began to sail outward and inward again. "'On a spring day like this,' said Anne, "'I know exactly what my soul will feel like on the resurrection morning. "'There are times in spring when I sort of feel that I might have been a poet if I'd been caught young,' remarked Captain Jim. "'I catch myself conning over old lines and verses I heard the schoolmaster reciting sixty years ago. They don't trouble me at other times.' Now I feel as if I had to get out on the rocks or the fields or the water and spout them." Captain Jim had come up that afternoon to bring Anne a load of shells for her garden, and a little bunch of sweet grass which he had found in a ramble over the sand-dunes. "'It's getting real scarce along this shore now,' he said. "'When I was a boy there was a plenty of it. But now it's only once in a while you'll find a plot, and never when you're looking for it. You just have to stumble on it. You're walking along the sand-hills, never thinking of sweet grass, and all at once the air is full of sweetness, and there's the grass under your feet. I favor the smell of sweet grass. It always makes me think of my mother." "'She was fond of it?' asked Anne. "'Not that I knows on. Dunno's she ever saw any sweet grass. No, it's because it has a kind of motherly perfume. Not too young, you understand. Something kind of seasoned and wholesome and dependable, just like a mother. The schoolmaster's bride always kept it among her handkerchiefs. You might put that little bunch among yours, Mistress Blythe. I don't like these boughten scents, but a whiff of sweet grass belongs anywhere a lady does." Anne had not been especially enthusiastic over the idea of surrounding her flower-beds with quahog-shells. As a decoration they did not appeal to her on first thought. But she would not have hurt Captain Jim's feelings for anything, so she assumed a virtue she did not at first feel and thanked him heartily. And when Captain Jim had proudly encircled every bed with a rim of the big, milk-white shells, Anne found to her surprise that she liked the effect. On a town lawn, or even up at the glen, they would not have been in keeping. But here, in the old-fashioned sea-bound garden of the little house of dreams, they belonged. "'They do look nice,' she said sincerely. "'The schoolmaster's bride always had cowhogs round her beds,' said Captain Jim. "'She was a master hand with flowers.' She looked at em and touched em so, and they grew like mad. Some folks have that knack. I reckon you have it too, Mistress Blythe." "'Oh, I don't know. But I love my garden, and I love working in it. 
to potter with green growing things, watching each day to see the dear new sprouts come up, is like taking a hand in creation, I think. Just now my garden is like faith, the substance of things hoped for. But bide a wee. It always amazes me to look at the little wrinkled brown seeds and think of the rainbows in em, said Captain Jim. When I ponder on them seeds, I don't find it no wise hard to believe that we've got souls that'll live in other worlds. You couldn't hardly believe there was life in them tiny things, some no bigger than grains of dust, let alone color and scent, if you hadn't seen the miracle, could you? Anne, who was counting her days like silver beads on a rosary, could not now take the long walk to the lighthouse or up the Glen Road. But Miss Cornelia and Captain Jim came very often to the little house. Miss Cornelia was the joy of Anne's and Gilbert's existence. They laughed side-splittingly over her speeches after every visit. When Captain Jim and she happened to visit the little house at the same time, there was much sport for the listening. They waged wordy warfare, she attacking, he defending. Anne once reproached the captain for his baiting of Miss Cornelia. "'Oh, I do love to set her going, Mistress Blythe,' chuckled the unrepentant sinner. "'It's the greatest amusement I have in life. That tongue of hers would blister a stone. And you and that young dog of a doctor enjoy listening to her as much as I do." Captain Jim came along another evening to bring Anne some mayflowers. The garden was full of the moist, scented air of a maritime spring evening. There was a milk-white mist on the edge of the sea, with a young moon kissing it, and a silver gladness of stars over the glen. The bell of the church across the harbor was ringing dreamily sweet. The mellow chime drifted through the dusk to mingle with the soft spring moan of the sea. Captain Jim's mayflowers added the last completing touch to the charm of the night. "'I haven't seen any this spring, and I've missed them,' said Anne, burying her face in them. "'They ain't to be found around four winds, only in the barrens away behind the glen up yonder. I took a little trip today to the land of nothing to do, and hunted these up for you. I reckon they're the last you'll see this spring, for they're nearly done.' How kind and thoughtful you are, Captain Jim. Nobody else—not even Gilbert—with a shake of her head at him—remembered that I always longed for mayflowers in the spring. Well, I had another errand, too. I wanted to take Mr. Howard back yonder a mess of trout. He likes one occasional, and it's all I can do for a kindness he did me once. I stayed all the afternoon and talked to him. He likes to talk to me, though he's a highly educated man, and I'm only an ignorant old sailor because he's one of the folks that's got to talk, or they're miserable, and he finds listeners scarce round here. The Glen folks might shy of him because they think he's an infidel. He ain't that far gone exactly—few men is, I reckon—but he's what you might call a heretic. Heretics are wicked, but they're mighty interesting. It's just that they've got sort of lost looking for God, being under the impression that he's hard to find, which he ain't never. Most of em blunder to him after a while, I guess. I don't think listening to Mr. Howard's arguments is likely to do me much harm. Mind you, I believe what I was brought up to believe. It saves a vast bother. And back of it all, God is good. The trouble with Mr. Howard is that he's a little too clever. He thinks that he's bound to live up to his cleverness, and that it's smarter to thrash out some new way of getting to heaven than to go by the old track the common ignorant folks is travelling. But he'll get there some time all right, and then he'll laugh at himself. Mr. Howard was a Methodist to begin with," said Miss Cornelia, as if she thought he had not far to go from that to heresy. "'Do you know, Cornelia,' 
said Captain Jim gravely. I've often thought that if I wasn't a Presbyterian I'd be a Methodist. Oh, well, conceded Miss Cornelia, if you weren't a Presbyterian it wouldn't matter much what you were. Speaking of heresy reminds me, doctor. I've brought back that book you lent me, that natural law in the spiritual world. I didn't read more'n a word of it. I can read sense, and I can read nonsense, but that book is neither the one nor the other." "'It is considered rather heretical in some quarters,' admitted Gilbert. "'But I told you that before you took it, Miss Cornelia. Oh, I wouldn't have minded its being heretical. I can stand wickedness, but I can't stand foolishness,' said Miss Cornelia calmly, and with the air of having said the last thing there was to say about natural law. "'Speaking of books, a mad love come to an end at last two weeks ago.' remarked Captain Jim musingly. It run to one hundred and three chapters. When they got married the book stopped right off, so I reckon their troubles were all over. It's real nice that that's the way in books anyhow, isn't it, even if tisn't so anywhere else?" "'I never read novels,' said Miss Cornelia. "'Did you hear how Geordie Russell was today, Captain Jim?' "'Yes. I called in on my way home to see him. He's getting around all right, but stewing in a broth of trouble as usual, poor man.' Of course he brews up most of it for himself, but I reckon that don't make it any easier to bear. He's an awful pessimist." "'Well, no, he ain't a pessimist exactly, Cornelia. He only just never finds anything that suits him.' "'And isn't that a pessimist?' "'No, no. A pessimist is one who never expects to find anything to suit him. Geordie ain't got that far yet.' "'You'd find something good to say of the devil himself, Jim Boyd.' Well, you've heard the story of the old lady who said he was persevering. But no, Cornelia, I've nothing good to say of the devil. Do you believe in him at all? asked Miss Cornelia seriously. How can you ask that when you know what a good Presbyterian I am, Cornelia? How could a Presbyterian get along without a devil? Do you? persisted Miss Cornelia. Captain Jim suddenly became grave. I believe in what I heard a minister once call a mighty and malignant and intelligent power of evil working in the universe," he said solemnly. I do that, Cornelia. You can call it the devil, or the principle of evil, or the old scratch, or any name you like. It's there. And all the infidels and heretics in the world can't argue it away, any more than they can argue God away. It's there, and it's working. But mind you, Cornelia, I believe it's going to get the worst of it in the long run." "'I am sure I hope so,' said Miss Cornelia, none too hopefully. But speaking of the devil, I am positive that Billy Booth is possessed by him now. Have you heard of Billy's latest performance?' "'No. What was that?' "'He's gone and burned up his wife's new brown broadcloth suit that she paid twenty-five dollars for in Charlottetown, because he declares the men looked too admiring at her when she wore it to church the first time. Wasn't that like a man?' Mistress Booth is mighty pretty, and brown's her color," said Captain Jim reflectively. "'Is that any good reason why he should poke her new suit into the kitchen stove? Billy Booth is a jealous fool, and he makes his wife's life miserable. She's cried all the week about her suit. Oh, Anne, I wish I could write like you, believe me, wouldn't I score some of the men around here?" "'Those Booths are all a mite queer,' said Captain Jim. Billy seemed the sanest of the lot till he got married, and then this queer jealous streak cropped out in him. His brother Daniel now was always odd. "'Took tantrums every few days or so and wouldn't get out of bed,' said Miss Cornelia with a relish. His wife would have to do all the barn work till he got over his spell. When he died people wrote her letters of condolence. If I'd written anything it would have been one of congratulation. 
Their father, old Abram Booth, was a disgusting old sot. He was drunk at his wife's funeral, and kept reeling round and hiccuping, "'I didn't drink much, but I feel awfully queer.' I gave him a good jab in the back with my umbrella when he came near me, and it sobered him up until they got the casket out of the house. Young Johnny Booth was to have been married yesterday, but he couldn't be because he's gone and got the mumps. Wasn't that like a man? How could he help getting the mumps, poor fellow? I'd poor fellow him, believe me, if I was Kate Stearns. I don't know how he could help getting the mumps, but I do know the wedding supper was all prepared, and everything will be spoiled before he's well again. Such a waste! He should have had the mumps when he was a boy. Come, come, Cornelia, don't you think you're a mite unreasonable?" Miss Cornelia disdained to reply, and turned instead to Susan Baker, a grim-faced, kind-hearted elderly spinster of the Glen, who had been installed as a maid-of-all work at the little house for some weeks. Susan had been up to the Glen to make a sick call, and had just returned. "'How is poor old Aunt Mandy to-night?' asked Miss Cornelia. Susan sighed. "'Very poorly, very poorly, Cornelia. I am afraid she will soon be in heaven, poor thing." "'Oh, surely it's not so bad as that!' exclaimed Miss Cornelia sympathetically. Captain Jim and Gilbert looked at each other. Then they suddenly rose and went out. "'There are times,' said Captain Jim between spasms, "'when it would be a sin not to laugh. Them two excellent women!' End of chapter 18「Chapter Nineteen of Anne's House of Dreams by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen. Dawn and Dusk. In early June, when the sand hills were a great glory of pink wild roses, and the glen was smothered in apple blossoms, Marilla arrived at the little house, accompanied by a black horsehair trunk, patterned with brass nails, which had reposed undisturbed in the Green Gables garret for half a century. Susan Baker, who, during her few weeks' sojourn in the little house, had come to worship young Mrs. Doctor, as she called Anne, with blind fervor, looked rather jealously askance at Marilla at first. But as Marilla did not try to interfere in kitchen matters, and showed no desire to interrupt Susan's ministrations to young Mrs. Doctor, the good handmaiden became reconciled to her presence, and told her cronies at the Glen that Miss Cuthbert was a fine old lady, and knew her place. One evening, when the sky's limpid bowl was filled with a red glory, and the robins were thrilling the golden twilight with jubilant hymns to the stars of evening, there was a sudden commotion in the little house of dreams. Telephone messages were sent up to the Glen. Dr. Dave and a white-capped nurse came hastily down. Marilla paced the garden walks between the quahog shells, murmuring prayers between her set lips, and Susan sat in the kitchen with cotton wool in her ears and her apron over her head. Leslie, looking out from the house up the brook, saw that every window of the little house was alight, and did not sleep that night. The June night was short, but it seemed an eternity to those who waited and watched. "'Oh, will it never end!' said Marilla. Then she saw how grave the nurse and Dr. Dave looked, and she dared ask no more questions. "'Suppose Anne—but Marilla could not suppose it. "'Do not tell me.' said Susan fiercely, answering the anguish in Marilla's eyes, that God could be so cruel as to take that darling lamb for us when we all love her so much. "'He has taken others as well, beloved,' said Marilla hoarsely. But at dawn, when the rising sun rent apart the mists hanging over the sandbar and made rainbows of them, joy came to the little house. Anne was safe, 
and a wee white lady with her mother's big eyes was lying beside her. Gilbert, his face gray and haggard from his night's agony, came down to tell Marilla and Susan. "'Thank God!' shuddered Marilla. Susan got up and took the cotton wool out of her ears. "'Now for breakfast,' she said briskly. "'I am of the opinion that we will all be glad of a bite and sup. You tell young Mrs. Doctor not to worry about a single thing. Susan is at the helm. You tell her just to think of her baby.' Gilbert smiled rather sadly as he went away. Anne, her pale face blanched with its baptism of pain, her eyes aglow with the holy passion of motherhood, did not need to be told to think of her baby. She thought of nothing else. For a few hours she tasted of happiness so rare and exquisite that she wondered if the angels in heaven did not envy her. "'Little Joyce,' she murmured, when Marilla came in to see the baby. We planned to call her that if she were a girlie. There were so many we would have liked to name her for, we couldn't choose between them. So we decided on Joyce. We can call her Joy for short. Joy. It suits so well. Oh, Marilla, I thought I was happy before. Now I know that I just dreamed a pleasant dream of happiness. This is the reality." "'You mustn't talk, Anne. Wait till you're stronger,' said Marilla warningly. "'You know how hard it is for me not to talk,' smiled Anne. At first she was too weak and too happy to notice that Gilbert and the nurse looked grave, and Marilla sorrowful. Then, as subtly and coldly and remorselessly as a sea-fog stealing landward, fear crept into her heart. Why was not Gilbert gladder? Why would he not talk about the baby? Why would they not let her have it with her after that first heavenly, happy hour? Was—was there anything wrong? "'Gilbert,' whispered Anne imploringly. The baby is all right, isn't she? Tell me. Tell me." Gilbert was a long while in turning round. Then he bent over Anne and looked in her eyes. Marilla, listening fearfully outside the door, heard a pitiful, heartbroken moan and fled to the kitchen where Susan was weeping. "'Oh, the poor lamb, the poor lamb! How can she bear it, Miss Cuthbert? I am afraid it will kill her. She has been that built up and happy, longing for that baby and planning for it. Cannot anything be done nohow, Miss Cuthbert?" "'I'm afraid not, Susan. Gilbert says there is no hope. He knew from the first the little thing couldn't live." "'And it is such a sweet baby,' sobbed Susan. "'I never saw one so white. They're mostly red or yellow. And it opened its big eyes as if it was months old. The little, little thing! Oh, the poor young Mrs. Doctor!" At sunset the little soul that had come with the dawning went away, leaving heartbreak behind it. Miss Cornelia took the wee white lady from the kindly but stranger hands of the nurse, and dressed the tiny waxen form in the beautiful dress Leslie had made for it. Leslie had asked her to do that. Then she took it back and laid it beside the poor, broken, tear-blinded little mother. "'The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, dearie,' she said through her own tears. Blessed be the name of the Lord." Then she went away, leaving Anne and Gilbert alone together with their dead. The next day the small white joy was laid in a velvet casket, which Leslie had lined with apple-blossoms, and taken to the graveyard of the church across the harbor. Miss Cornelia and Marilla put all the little love-made garments away, together with the ruffled basket which had been befrilled and belaced for dimpled limbs and downy head. Little Joy was never to sleep there she had found a colder, narrower bed. 
"'This has been an awful disappointment to me,' sighed Miss Cornelia. "'I've looked forward to this baby, and I did want it to be a girl, too.' "'I can only be thankful that Anne's life was spared,' said Marilla, with a shiver, recalling those hours of darkness when the girl she loved was passing through the valley of the shadow. "'Poor, poor lamb! Her heart is broken,' said Susan. "'I envy Anne,' said Leslie, suddenly and fiercely. "'And I'd envy her even if she had died. She was a mother for one beautiful day. I'd gladly give my life for that.' "'I wouldn't talk like that, Leslie, dearie,' said Miss Cornelia deprecatingly. She was afraid that the dignified Miss Cuthbert would think Leslie quite terrible. Anne's convalescence was long, and made bitter for her by many things. The bloom and sunshine of the Four Winds world grated harshly on her. And yet, when the rain fell heavily, she pictured it beating so mercilessly down on that little grave across the harbor. And when the wind blew around the eaves, she heard sad voices in it that she had never heard before. Kindly callers heard her, too, with the well-meant platitudes with which they strove to cover the nakedness of bereavement. A letter from Phil Blake was an added sting. Phil had heard of the baby's birth but not of its death, and she wrote Anne a congratulatory letter of sweet mirth which hurt her horribly. "'I would have laughed over it so happily if I had my baby,' she sobbed to Marilla. "'But when I haven't it just seems like wanton cruelty, though I know Phil wouldn't hurt me for the world. Oh, Marilla, I don't see how I can ever be happy again. Everything will hurt me all the rest of my life.' "'Time will help you.' said Marilla, who was racked with sympathy, but could never learn to express it in other than age-worn formulas. "'It doesn't seem fair,' said Anne rebelliously. "'Babies are born and live where they are not wanted, where they will be neglected, where they will have no chance. I would have loved my baby so, and cared for it so tenderly, and tried to give her every chance for good. And yet I wasn't allowed to keep her.' "'It was God's will, Anne.' said Marilla, helpless before the riddle of the universe, the why of undeserved pain. And little Joy is better off. I can't believe that," cried Anne bitterly. Then, seeing that Marilla looked shocked, she added passionately, "'Why should she be born at all? Why should anyone be born at all if she's better off dead? I don't believe it is better for a child to die at birth than to live its life out, and love and be loved, and enjoy and suffer and do its work, and develop a character that would give it a personality in eternity. And how do you know that it was God's will? Perhaps it was just a thwarting of His purpose by the power of evil. We can't be expected to be resigned to that." "'Oh, Anne, don't talk so,' said Marilla, genuinely alarmed, lest Anne were drifting into deep and dangerous waters. "'We can't understand.' but we must have faith. We must believe that all is for the best. I know you find it hard to think so just now, but try to be brave, for Gilbert's sake. He's so worried about you. You aren't getting strong as fast as you should." "'Oh, I know I've been very selfish,' sighed Anne. "'I love Gilbert more than ever, and I want to live for his sake. But it seems as if part of me was buried over there in that little harbor graveyard, and it hurts so much that I'm afraid of life. It won't hurt so much always, Anne. The thought that it may stop hurting sometimes hurts me worse than all else, Marilla. Yes, I know. I've felt that, too, about other things. But we all love you, Anne. Captain Jim has been up every day to ask for you, and Mrs. Moore haunts the place, and Miss Bryant spends most of her time, I think, cooking up nice things for you. Susan doesn't like it very well. She thinks she can cook as well as Miss Bryant. 
Dear Susan, oh, everybody has been so dear and good and lovely to me, Marilla. I'm not ungrateful. And perhaps, when this horrible ache grows a little less, I'll find that I can go on living. End of chapter 19「Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.